Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. And we are indeed reviewing and ranking a mystery novel by Agatha Christie in this episode. This has been a long time coming. I know many of you have been looking forward to slash dreading this episode because it is time to discuss Postern of Fate, the final Tommy and Tuppence novel, the final novel Agatha Christie wrote, though thankfully not the final novel of hers that was published. I will be joined in the second half of this episode by Caroline Crampton, host of the She Done It podcast. I'm so thrilled that she agreed to come on and help rank this novel with me. Before I get into the usual breakdown, I would like to do a little housekeeping. It's mailbag time. (laughs) So first up, let's talk twins. Mark Aldridge and I said in our Elephants Can Remember episode that surely anyone who knew twins would remember them since twins are relatively rare or at the very least uncommon. And we pointed to the fact that neither of us actually knew any identical twins. And then my dear friend from childhood who listens to this podcast wrote to me, reminding me that there were not one but two sets of identical twins uh, living in the place where we grew up. So apparently you can forget about identical twins. I should have given Agatha Christie the benefit of the doubt there. Also, after sitting down and thinking about it for a minute, I realized that I came into contact with a third set of identical twins when I was super young. Uh, This third set were actually mirror twins, which is a subset of identical twins in which certain physiological features like birthmarks, moles, dimples, what have you, are on opposite sides of each twin's body. It's like they're facing each other with one twin being the reflection of the other. That's why I know I am not making this up uh, because one of these twins had a noticeable birthmark on her right cheek and the other had it on her left cheek. This sent me on a little bit of a rabbit hole as to mirror twins. And apparently about a quarter of all identical twins are mirror twins. And sometimes these mirrored characteristics aren't just physiological, they're functional. One twin will be left-handed and the other will be right-handed, for instance. Very fascinating. I also got this charmingly spirited letter from a listener who lives in a small town in Australia. This is what she had to say about twins. Dear Kemper, I thoroughly enjoyed the latest episode about Elephants Can Remember. Compliments aside, I have to disagree with you about the prevalence of twins in the world. But before I do, I want to reassure you that as a plot device, I think they are best avoided. I also realize that you may have already received more than enough emails on this topic and are probably rolling your eyes. Just an aside, I did not receive more than enough emails on this topic, and I was not rolling my eyes. Back to the letter. But there really are quite a lot of twins about. I am basing this solely on my personal experience, so piff this email into the bin whenever you feel like it. I was born in 1974, well before IVF was having an impact on the occurrence of twin births. Yet without thinking too hard, I come up with 10 sets of twins that I have known at least as acquaintances throughout my life in a small town. Please note, I am not a social butterfly, so I'm sure there are many more. And then I'm skipping a bit here over the breakdown of these 10 sets of twins who this listener knows. So even though using identical twins is a lazy plot device, it is entirely plausible. To further back this up is my experience of siblings passing for each other. As we have got older, my sister and I, she is two years older, are often mistaken for each other by people who are more acquaintances than friends. We usually let it slide, but it can get awkward. A few years ago, I ran into a man who was in my sister's school year and who also went out with one of my friends for a good 12 months. 
He wasn't my favorite person, but the social setting called for politeness, i.e. I was watching my nephew play in the Easter tournament at the lawn tennis club. It was not long before I realized he thought he was talking to my sister, and I really couldn't be bothered correcting him, so I played the part. Luckily, it was a boringly pleasant chat, and he soon left. Hence, my sister and I have both thought we could pull off some Agatha Christie switcheroo plot if we really had to. I think living in a small community makes it more likely you have contact with whole families, therefore more likely to be aware of twins and siblings who get mistaken for each other. Comments like, it's one of the Smith girls slash boys, or I can never tell them apart, so much like their mother slash father slash aunt, are not unusual. It is this view of semi-closed communities where everyone is at least aware of each other that Christy writes from, particularly through Miss Marple. Kemper, I am going to go out on a limb and guess that you did not grow up in a small town, and that is why you find the twins and siblings switcheroo plot so unrealistic. It would be interesting to know what other listeners' experiences and thoughts are about this. Well, with all the love and respect in the world for this listener and her lovely message to me, I am thrilled to inform her that she is wrong. I, in fact, did grow up in a small town. My town had about 7,000 people in it, quite small by most standards. But again, I've also realized after thinking about it for more than two seconds that I know at least three sets of identical twins, and I'm not even going to start counting the fraternal twin pairs I know. So point absolutely taken, listener, and thank you for that entertaining email. Let's move on from twins to dementia. (laughs) All right. So before we get into the novel proper, I do want to talk about dementia again. And I promise I won't make too much of a point about this because I spoke about it at great length in our previous novel episode for Elephants Can Remember. But this book was also part of that University of Toronto study conducted by the English professor, Dr. Ian Lancashire, and the computer scientist, Dr. Graham Hurst. And they used several late career texts of Christie's to come to the conclusion that she was experiencing some form of cognitive decline or malfunction. And we noted that decline in Elephants Can Remember, and it seems to be much steeper in this book. That is not going to come as a surprise to anyone, I think, who has read the book or is even a casual fan of Christie. That's pretty much the main association that readers have with Posturn of Fate. Oh, right. That's the one where Agatha Christie, not to be too glib about it, seems to have lost her marbles. Because while we had a rather foggy story in Elephants Can Remember, here the story isn't so much foggy as just plain broken. There will obviously be a lot more on this later when Caroline Crampton joins the episode and ranks this novel with me. But... I did just want to mention it at the outset, and I would also just like to suggest that we can look at this uh, a bit more positively, more constructively. In a way, I think the fog of Elephants Can Remember gives way in Posture and a Fate to a childlike state of wonder and reminiscence. The Christie biographer, Laura Thompson, actually puts it beautifully, as she tends to put so many of her insights about Christie in her lovely biography. She writes about Christie's, quote, sense of the past becoming slowly stronger, filling her mind like calm waters. I love that image, the past filling her mind like calm waters. And yes, this is sad, but it's also touching, especially given how much joy Christie's given us up until now. So I just want to keep that in mind as I proceed to complain about how bad this book is, because make no mistake, it is bad. And just to reinforce that positivity, I also want you to read out this message from another listener. Posture of Fate is my pick for what should be the bottom-ranked novel. Admittedly, it has been a very long time since I read Posture of Fate, but for me, I find it incredibly heartbreaking, probably even more so than Curtain. 
My grandmother is almost 97 years old and her hobby was ceramics. Our family must have hundreds and hundreds, or dare I say hundreds and thousands. Oh, I see what you did there, you sneaky listener, you. Dare I say hundreds and thousands of beautifully painted ceramic figures. But as time went on, her ability waned significantly until she simply couldn't do it anymore. Yet she continued her art, but her work really was painful to look at. Her one strong ability was debased until it no longer existed. That's how I feel about Postern of Fate. The book is difficult to read from that perspective. It struggles in ways those other lower-ranked Christies do not. I don't want to dive into Christie's mental state here, and there is some research on that, but it feels as if this was a struggle for her to write and plot out. But even these lesser Christies have charm and often a good mystery at the center of it. She is the queen of crime, after all. True enough, listener, and I love the idea of regarding Posture of Fate as a heartbreakingly misshapen version of all the more beautiful creations that came before it. I just think it keeps us from sneering too much, which is everyone's tendency when discussing this extremely flawed book, and definitely my tendency too. So... With that disclaimer in mind, let's get into Postern of Fate and talk about the title. This title comes from a poem, The Gates of Damascus by James Elroy Flecker. And we get the relevant portion of the poem right up front in an epigraph. I'll just read it out now. Four great gates has the city of Damascus, Postern of Fate, the Desert Gate, Disaster's cavern, fort of fear. Pass not beneath, O caravan, or pass not singing. Have you heard that silence where the birds are dead, yet something pipeth like a bird? Very ominous, very sinister. Per Christie biographer Janet Morgan, she tried several titles, Postern of Fate, Doom's Caravan, Disaster's Caravan, Fort of Fear. These obviously were all inspired by Flecker's poem. And we've actually come across this poem before in the Parker Pine short story, The Gate of Baghdad, which Catherine and I covered a long, long while back. That story was published all the way in 1933. So the very title of this book is a blast from the past because everything in this book is a blast from the past, though perhaps blast is a bit of an overstatement a murmur from the past, an echo. Anyway, moving on. Per Christie scholar John Curran, apparently at one point there was an editorial suggestion that the title be changed to Postern of Death, which I guess some editor thought would be more evocative. But of course, that wouldn't work because this title is a quote. And that quote does get cited surprisingly often in the novel. It comes up several times, usually with one character saying it and then another character noting, that's Flecker, isn't it? (laughs) One time a character tries to guess the title of the poem, Gates of Baghdad or is it the Gates of Damascus? So in this way, Christie even manages to reference the Parker Pine title as well. So let's talk a little bit about publication history. We know that Christie started writing this book in November of 1972, almost exactly a year before it was published, which was in October of 1973 by Collins Crime Club, of course. And then it was published in the U.S. by Dodd Mead later that same year. And there don't seem to have been any serializations of this book, which is something that I'll get to in just a moment. We get a tragic bit of biographical information as to what the writing of this book was like. And I'm getting this from Janet Morgan, quoting here. Agatha found it harder than ever to concentrate. Max told Rosalind that writing this book nearly killed her, and she herself was uneasy. She asked Cork for a candid opinion, and he tactfully suggested she have some help with editing. Max and Mrs. Honeybone, who did typing for the Mallowans, and to whom Agatha had dedicated Nemesis, tidied it up, though Agatha's family, Rosalind in particular, was unhappy. And then Laura Thompson quotes from a letter that Christie's U.S. agent Dorothy Olding wrote to Christie's U.K. agent Edmund Cork. Uh, We've read a few of Olding's letters before, so we know that she was not one to hold back, and she definitely does not hold back here. This is what she had to say. 
It's pretty ghastly, isn't it? Much worse than the last two. I won't try cereal, even if there is time, unless someone requests it violently. Poor dear. I wish there was a way for somebody to tell her that this shouldn't be published for her sake. That comes across as a little nasty, but she also isn't wrong. So this is all pretty sad, but as was always the case with late career Christie's, the book was received quite well and sold like gangbusters. This is what Janet Morgan tells us. When Posture of Fate was published, the notices were unexpectedly good and so were sales. It moved rapidly up the bestseller list and by February 1974 was in third place in the list compiled by the European edition of Time magazine. And John Curran notes that the book went into the bestseller charts within weeks of publication and stayed there. But there can be no doubt that at this stage, fans automatically bought each new title just because it was the new Christie for Christmas. And this is true, but in a way, that's also something to celebrate. Christie had built up a following and a faith, I think, from her fans when it came to her mystery writing abilities. And there really wasn't anything that could shake that faith. I mean, if Posturn of Fate didn't shake their faith, then nothing ever really could have. I really don't think it's an exaggeration to say that Christie couldn't fail to succeed at this point, which of course is why the book was published at all. And it puts me in mind of Harper Lee, actually, and the publication of Go Set a Watchman when Harper Lee's ability to say no, which she seemed to have said her entire life about publishing this book, was seriously in question due to her age. And, you know, Harper Lee did not have a daughter to protect her best interest in her legacy, but fortunately, Agatha Christie did. And this is what Janet Morgan writes about the period immediately following Christie's delivery and publication of Posture of Fate. Quoting from her again, Rosalind was firm. Worried about Agatha's health, she was also a stern guardian of her mother's literary reputation. She asked Collins to press for no more books. Billy Collins agreed that Agatha's health must be protected, though he left the question open by declaring that, while her mind was active, maybe it is a help to her to be thinking out a plot, and surely we should not definitely turn down the idea if she thinks she would like to write another story. Hmm. I'm sure you had Dame Agatha's best interests at heart and not the company's bottom line in mind, Billy. Yes, I realize he could have had both in mind, but this just feels like such a questionable position to me and indicative of the fact that despite her long and storied relationship with Collins and with Dodd Mead and all the other various publishers in other countries, these really were business relationships at the end of the day. So I'm glad that Rosalind was there to put her foot down. And finally, just for a little bit more context and to chase away all this doom and gloom surrounding the publication of Posture of Fate, I wanted to bring up something fun that happened around this time. There was a letter that Christie wrote while she was working on this very novel. It appeared in the Times on the 3rd of February, 1973. I'm getting this actually from John Curran, and I wanted to highlight it because I think it's a nice reminder that the dame she really was a dame by this point, uh, wasn't all fogginess and infirmity around this time. In this article, Christie expanded on a recent theory of a friend of hers and Max's. That was the Shakespeare scholar A.L. Rouse, who thought he'd hit upon the identity of Shakespeare's dark lady. That's the woman Shakespeare wrote about in so many of his sonnets. And Christie used the opportunity to opine about how Cleopatra in Antony and Cleopatra was not a romantic heroine, but instead the ultimate depiction of Shakespeare's dark lady, who, according to Christie, Shakespeare was obsessed with, but clearly hated. And I won't get into it now, except to note for the umpteenth time, Christie's love of Shakespeare. But I'm going to include a screenshot of the article on the podcast's Twitter and Instagram accounts if you'd like to check it out. And I just have to highlight this bit at the end because I think you'll all appreciate this. Here's what Christie wrote. 
Shakespeare was probably not a good actor, though one feels that this is what he originally wanted to be. All his works show a passion for the stage and for comparisons with actors. How odd it is that a first disappointment in his ambition forced him to a second choice, the writing of plays, and so gave to England a great poet and a great genius. I think you could easily make the argument, and I'll go ahead and make it now, that the self-deprecating Christie, who never would have dreamed of tooting her own horn openly, was very much thinking of herself when she wrote that passage. You know, she was a frustrated musician who then turned to writing. Catherine and I talked about Christie's musical proclivities in our All About Opera episode. And in her very first Mary Westmacott novel, Giant's Bread, she centers her story on a musical genius. I'm actually going to be covering that book on our next Patreon episode, if you'd like to check that out. But I love the idea of Christy drawing a parallel between herself and Shakespeare here. Not because it's laughable, but because it's apt. And even if Christy didn't draw it herself, I'm happy to draw it now. Yes, thank goodness, Agatha Christie, the singer and pianist, turned away from a career as a performer and focused instead on writing, and in so doing, gave to England a great writer and a great genius. I think we can all agree on that. All right, so let's talk about the dedication briefly. It reads, for Hannibal and his master. And that's curious because Hannibal is one of the characters in Posturn of Fate. He is the Manchester Terrier featured quite heavily in the story. Uh, there's no question that Hannibal is the fictionalized version of Christie's own Manchester Terrier, Bingo. And Bingo was even featured on the inside flap of the UK first edition of this book with a caption identifying him as Hannibal. Bingo was actually Christie's second Manchester Terrier. Her first, Treacle, had died in 1969. Christie, of course, was a huge dog lover all her life. She had dogs as a child. And let's never forget that she immortalized her dog, Peter, in the novel Dumb Witness as the fictional dog, Bob, who is also featured rather centrally in that book. Dumb Witness was chock full of Bob's doggy thoughts written directly on the page. And I'm equal parts alarmed and excited to tell you that this book also has its fair share of doggy thoughts on the part of Hannibal. More on that later. I should also note that since this dedication is not just to Hannibal, but Hannibal's master, i.e. Max Mallowan, this is the third book Christie dedicated to him. The first was The Sitterford Mystery, and the second was Murder on the Orient Express, not a bad little triumvirate of books there for Max Mallowan to have under his belt as dedicatee. <laughs> I believe he's the only person to receive three dedications from Christie. And fair enough, that certainly feels warranted. All right, so let's talk about our victims in this book. We have two victims from the past and one from the present. It takes a long time for us to figure out who the murder victims from the past are. And then it takes a long time for our present day murder victim to be done in. But taking things chronologically here, we have first Mary Jordan, who is a governess with some German or at least Germanic roots who people suspect of being a spy. But which side was she spying for? Which side indeed? Apparently, she was served foxglove leaves along with a bunch of other people, and she died of digitalis poisoning from those foxglove leaves. So maybe this was an accident, maybe not. When did this happen? Well, just as in Nemesis and Elephants Can Remember, there is a lot of fuzziness as to the dating of the past crime. It was anywhere between 50 and 70 years ago, which would place it within the time range of 1903 to 1923, 
But there are multiple references to these events taking place in the years leading up to the First World War. So let's say 60-ish years ago and leave it at that. And this happened in Holoki, the village where Tommy and Toppins have moved. Our second victim is Alexander Parkinson, a boy who lived in the household where Mary Jordan worked as a governess. He died at the age of 14. One person thinks that he died of leukemia, while another thinks he ate something bad at a picnic. We'll get into it. And then our third victim from the present is Isaac Bodlicott, a.k.a. Old Isaac. He is an older gentleman who does all sorts of odd jobs around the village, including gardening work for Tommy and Tuppence in their new home. And he is coshed over the head and dies. Moving right along into our list of suspects, except <gasps> there isn't a list at all. And this is an interesting situation because we obviously have two deaths from 60-ish years ago and then one death in the present day. So there's no way that one person could have done all three murders. I mean, I suppose it's possible for someone to have murdered in their late teens or early 20s and then again when they're around 80. (laughs) But that would be unlikely. And that is not what happened here. If this were normal, Christie, then I would have to divide up the list of suspects into those presented to us for the past murders and then those for the present day murder. But fortunately for me as a summarizer and unfortunately for all of us as readers, my task is a lot easier because there really are no suspects at all. Seriously, this book mainly consists of Tommy and Tuppence puttering around their house, opening up books, tuning pianos, trying not to fall into holes made by electricians, knocking over porcelain stools, careening around on rocking horses in the garden, etc., etc. There isn't a whole lot that happens until a short section at the end when a whole lot happens in a very compressed and unlikely manner. We'll get there. And I'm sorry to say that no one is really presented as a suspect until very arguably so late in the book that it's just not even worth identifying that person as a suspect from the outset, (laughs) because you'll have forgotten about that person by the time I get there. So let's just leave that list of suspects blank for the only time on this podcast and move right along into the world as it appears to be. Tommy and Tuppence have moved into a new house. Uh, We don't learn for quite some time where this new house is, but eventually we do learn it's in the small village of Hollow Key. That might be pronounced Hollow Key, but I'm going to call it Hollow Key because this village is obviously a stand-in for Torquay. This is how Christie describes it in the book. Developed first as a fishing village and then further developed as an English Riviera, and now a mere summer resort crowded in August. Most people now preferred package trips abroad. So this very much sounds like Torquay, even though Hollow Key is apparently much smaller than Torquay. But it also makes sense that it's standing in for Torquay because that's where Agatha Christie grew up. And this book is very much focused on Agatha Christie's reminiscences as a child. So let's zero in on the house to which Tommy and Toppins have moved. The name of this house is a bit up for grabs. We're told many times that it's gone by many different names down the years. The Laurels, Prince's Lodge, Long Schofield, Swallow's Nest, even Katmandu, which was my favorite. Tuppence at one point suggests the plane trees. And at another point, Tommy says they're thinking of calling it Cedar Lodge because sure, let's throw in some more names. For ease of reference, I'm just going to call it the Laurels because that's the name used by far the most in the book. 
So the one thing there is no question about is that the Laurels is a stand-in for Christie's childhood home of Ashfield. And we've seen Christie wax poetic about her beloved Ashfield before, perhaps most notably in The Hollow, where the ancestral home of Ainswick, which various characters pine after, is in many ways a stand-in for Ashfield. As Laura Thompson notes, the garden at Ainswick is filled with Ashfield's trees, and we see Christie doing something very similar here. The monkey puzzle tree in the garden at Ashfield, where Christie played as a child, gets mentioned many, many times in Posture of Fate. And we know that Christie wasn't big on elaborate physical descriptions of place in her mysteries, and I think her mysteries are mainly the better for that. But we actually do get a lovely description of the garden at Ashfield in Christie's autobiography. And it really is the garden, what we in the United States might call the backyard, <laughs> that is the location of significance in this book. So I think it's worth reading out Christie's reminiscences as to the garden at Ashfield and then comparing them with what we get in the book. So here's what she says in her autobiography. On wet days, there was Mathilde. Mathilde was a large American rocking horse, which had been given to my sister and brother when they were children in America. It had been brought back to England and now a battered wreck of its former self, sans mane, sans paint, sans tail, etc., was ensconced in a small greenhouse which adjoined the house on one side. Quite distinct from the conservatory, a grandiloquent erection containing pots of begonias, geraniums, tiered stands of every kind of fern and several large palm trees. This small greenhouse called, I don't know why, KK, and those are just the letters K written twice. And then she writes in parentheses, or possibly KK, writing out the word K-A-I twice. She does the exact same thing in Posture and a Fabe. KK was bereft of plants and housed instead croquet mallets, hoops, balls, broken garden chairs, old painted iron tables, a decayed tennis net, and Matilde. Mathilde had a splendid action, much better than that of any English rocking horse I've ever known. She sprang forwards and back, upwards and down, and ridden at full pressure was liable to unseat you. Her springs, which needed oiling, made a terrific groaning and added to the pleasure and danger. Splendid exercise again. No wonder I was a skinny child. As companion to Mathilde and KK was True Love, also of transatlantic origin. True Love was a small painted horse and cart with pedals. Presumably from long years of disuse, the pedals were no longer workable. Large applications of oil might have done the trick, but there was an easier way of making True Love serviceable. Like all gardens in Devon, our garden was on a slope. My method was to pull True Love to the top of a long grassy slope, settle myself carefully, utter an encouraging sound, and off we went. Slowly at first, gathering momentum whilst I braked with my feet so that we came to rest under the monkey puzzle at the bottom of the garden. Then I would pull True Love back up to the top and start down once more. I discovered in later years that it had been a great source of amusement to my future brother-in-law to see this process enacted for sometimes an hour at a time, always in perfect solemnity. And I love the idea that these toys were already in a state of decay and disrepair because Agatha Christie's siblings were a lot older than she was. So these were toys that Madge and Monty had played with, you know, about a decade before. And they had been purchased in the United States because Agatha Christie's father was American and the family had even lived in the U.S. before eventually settling in the U.K. It really helps explain, I think, why in Christie's memory, these toys were already broken and dusty and KK was a bit of a hodgepodge mess. As the third child, she was used to playing with hand-me-downs, which I think any younger child in a family can attest to. <laughs> it just kind of comes with the territory. I myself am also the third and last child in my family. 
So this description of Mathilde and true love really does accord with what Christie writes in Poster and a Fate. And now I'm going to quote from the novel. Mathilde was a rather splendid looking horse, even in decay. Its length was quite the length of any horse or mare to be found nowadays. Only a few hairs were left of what must once have been a prolific mane. One ear was broken off. It had once been painted gray. Its front legs splayed out in front and its back legs at the back. It had a wispy tail. It doesn't work like any rocking horse I've ever seen before, said Tuppence, interested. No, it don't do it, said Isaac. You know, they go up and down, up and down, front to back. But this one here, you see, this sort of springs forwards. Once first, the front legs do it, whoop, and then the back legs do it. It's a very good action. And I don't actually have to describe true love from the book because... There is actually a picture of True Love from back in the day that was included in Agatha Christie's autobiography. It's in one of those photographic inserts in the book. Christie's ne'er-do-well brother, Monty, is sitting atop it, making a spectacle of himself. So I'll go ahead and put that photo as well on Twitter and Instagram for all of you to see. But it isn't just the layout of the garden or the horsey playthings that Christie lifts from her childhood in this book. Per Laura Thompson, the River Horses game, she describes, where you pretend your hoop is a horse, was a game that Agatha actually played. And she does go on at some length in her autobiography about the importance of her hoop. (laughs) And you know, all this may be irrelevant to whatever mystery plot is attempting to unspool itself in these 300 plus pages. (laughs) It's 325 pages in my copy, which is very long for a Christie novel. But I think you could make the argument that if the novel ever comes alive, it's actually in these sections. The personal reminiscences really do seem to be the whole point. As Laura Thompson said, the past was filling her mind like calm waters. Christie's enjoying the act of remembering, which would be poignant without any greater context because she's a very old lady now, but of course becomes even more poignant given that we know or can at least theorize with some confidence that she was having such a hard time with her memory around this time. I was actually reminded of what Mark Aldridge said in our Elephants Can Remember episode, which is that at least with these late career books, the filter's worn away a bit. And we get to see Christie's view of herself. We get her telling us her unvarnished thoughts on things and her memories. And just to pluck one of the lovelier instances of these personal reminiscences from the book, at one point early on, Tuppence tells Tommy that, I read at five years old. Everybody could when I was young. I didn't know one even had to sort of learn. I mean, somebody would read stories aloud and you liked them very much and you remembered where the book went back on the shelf and you were always allowed to take it out and have a look at it yourself. And so you found you were reading it too, without bothering to learn to spell or anything like that. It wasn't so good later, she said, because I've never been able to spell very well. And if somebody had taught me to spell when I was about four years old, I can see it would have been very good indeed. My father did teach me to do addition and subtraction and multiplication, of course, because he said the multiplication table was the most useful thing you could learn in life, and I learned long division too. What a clever man he must have been, says Tommy. I don't think he was specially clever, said Tuppence, but he was just very, very nice. Aren't we getting away from the point, asked Tommy, and indeed we are. (laughs) But let's just run with that for a second and move on over to Christie's autobiography, where she writes, When a story had been read to me and I liked it, I would ask for the book and study the pages, which, at first meaningless, gradually began to make sense. When out with Nursie, I would ask her what the words written up over shops or on hoardings were. As a result, one day I found I was reading a book called The Angel of Love quite successfully to myself. Not yet five, the world of storybooks was open to me. 
And then Christy writes a bit further down the page. My father said I might as well start arithmetic. And every morning after breakfast, I would set to at the dining room window seat, enjoying myself with figures. And of course, she has much the same view of her father as Tuppence has of hers. Here's what she says about him. He had no outstanding characteristics. He was not particularly intelligent. I think that he had a simple and loving heart, and he really cared for his fellow men. He had a great sense of humor, and he easily made people laugh. There was no meanness in him, no jealousy, and he was almost fantastically generous, and he had a natural happiness and serenity. What a nice sentiment. I love that she felt that way about her father. And it's very clear that Tuppence is a stand-in here for Agatha Christie, which she had been before. (laughs) So anyway, it's safe to say that this book is filled with lots of meandering asides, such as the few I already plucked out of the text to give a little flavor. If we're feeling generous, I think we can say these asides are charming. If we're feeling less generous, we can say they're irritatingly irrelevant. I definitely swerved from one end to the other of this reactionary spectrum several times while reading the book. But let's just move on from the asides now and sketch out the actual mystery plot of this book, such as it exists. So Tuppence is going through a bunch of children's books left in the laurels by previous owners down the years. And I think we can be reasonably assured that these books were on Christie's bookshelves while she was writing Postern of Fate. From what I understand, many of them can still be found on the shelves of Greenway this very day. Robert Louis Stevenson gets the biggest shout out with Treasure Island, Kidnapped, Katrina, and of course, The Black Arrow being mentioned. More on that shortly. But since we're all book nerds here, I may as well indulge in an aside of my own and run down all the other authors mentioned, either directly or indirectly, by way of the books they wrote. We've got Stanley Wyman, who gets mentioned a bunch, as does Mrs. Molesworth. Apparently, she was known as the Jane Austen of the nursery, which is just fantastic. There is L.T. Mead, who is another female author for young readers. A.A. Milne, who's Winnie the Pooh, gets a shout out. Lewis Carroll's Alice Books. Charlotte Young, a religious writer who promoted the Oxford movement, which has come up at least once before, I believe, in the Miss Marple short story, Tape Measure Murder. E. Nesbitt, who was a woman. G.A. Henty, who was a man. An author named Charlotte Mariah Tucker, who wrote under the fabulous pseudonym Allo, A-L-O-E, that is to say, A Lady of England. (laughs) Lady Whistledon's got nothing on her as far as pseudonyms are concerned. And of course, Antony Hope, who's the prisoner of Zendo, we already know Christy very much adored. So one of the books top titles over is The Black Arrow by Robert Louis Stevenson. I was always more of a kidnapped man myself, or I suppose I should say a kidnapped boy. And in this book, which has the name Alexander Parkinson written in the front of it, Tuppence happens upon a code. Someone has underlined a series of letters so that if the letters are extracted from the text, they read as follows. Mary Jordan did not die naturally. It was one of us. I think I know which one. The naturally has only one L in it, actually, which comes to make sense because Tommy and Tuppence discover that this Alexander Parkinson was only 14 when he died. And they find this out by way of locating Alexander's gravestone in the local cemetery, which annoys me to no end because that means there are exact dates on that gravestone. And I just wish Christy had supplied us with those exact dates like she did eventually in Elephants Can Remember. But alas, she does not. Uh, And the dating of Mary Jordan and Alexander Parkinson's deaths remains vague at best. 
But in any case, we find out that maybe Alexander Parkinson died of leukemia. So perhaps there isn't anything nefarious going on with this book code and his death. But come on, we are in a Christie mystery here, even if only just. (laughs) So you know there have to be some nefarious goings on. And Tuppence learns from Gwenda, who works in the post office in town, that Mary Jordan was a German Fraulein, spelled F-R-O-W-L-I-N-E. She was a beautiful blonde woman who worked as a governess and went to London on her days off, where apparently she snuck important papers and information to enemies of the state at meeting spots such as the Peter Pan statue in Kensington Gardens. Because of course she did. But then she accidentally got ill and died before anyone could do anything about all this spy stuff. Okay. Uh, Gwenda is getting all this information from her grandmother since it happened forever ago. And it seems like Gwenda's grandmother couldn't put two and two together. Obviously, Mary's death due to having eaten foxglove leaves by mistake is extremely suspicious. It's also extremely familiar. We've seen this same scenario before in the Miss Marple short story, The Herb of Death. But basically, we just get pages upon pages of more rambling now and more puttering about on Tuppence's part in the garden and in the greenhouse named KK. In particular, in KK, Tuppence notices two, quote, porcelain stools with the figures of white swans curled round them. One stool was dark blue and the other stool was pale blue, end quote. Tuppence remembers these sorts of stools from her youth and the fact that they used to be called Oxford in Cambridge. And she continues on with this reverie. And then there was the same sort of queer thing in the seat, a sort of hole that was like a letter S, the sort of thing you could put things into. So let's just note that, shall we? Then we get to a little sit down that Tommy has with the Colonel Atkinson, because Tommy is also intrigued by all this Mary Jordan and Alexander Parkinson business. And Colonel Atkinson tells Tommy that apparently there was some talk of long lost letters that might still be ferreted away somewhere at the Laurels. And if these letters got out, they would do some mischief. I'm quoting now from Colonel Atkinson. I tell you, if those papers ever come to light, it'll have a very, very great effect on the political front. And there are several people who won't be pleased. No, indeed. And those people who won't be pleased are looked on as pillars of rectitude at the moment. But by some, they are thought to be dangerous. Remember that. They're dangerous. And the ones that aren't dangerous are in contact with those who are dangerous. So you be careful and make your missus be careful, too. So there we have our underlying intrigue. This Mary Jordan business has set them on the trail of unearthing some politically important papers still lurking somewhere in their house. I would like to point out that we are approximately one third of the way through the book at this point, and we are just getting to what underlies the investigation that Tommy and Tuppence are rather half-heartedly carrying out. Moving on. When Tommy gets back from this meeting, he learns that Tuppence was nearly decapitated or at least severely lacerated by a pane of glass on the top of the greenhouse falling down on her. But she's fine. And obviously, this was just an unfortunate accident. No harm done. Hmm. Naturally, Tuppence is thrilled to be on another adventure again when she hears about the idea of some important papers being hidden in the house. She's even hopeful that the pane of glass falling was, in fact, an attempt on her life, though she still doesn't really believe it was. Throughout this book, both Tommy and Tuppence are distressingly blasé about all the attempts that are made on their lives. I'll just put that out there. Tommy then goes on a series of meetings with the sort of aged government types who populated Passenger to Frankfurt, including Mr. Robinson, who literally did populate Passenger to Frankfurt, among other titles. 
Incidentally, why Tuppence can't be in these meetings with Tommy is unclear to me, especially since all these dudes spend half their time telling Tommy how resourceful and generally awesome Tuppence is. I mean, it's 1973, people. Tuppence should have a seat at the table. Come on. In any case, Mr. Robinson sheds light on whatever this document or set of documents could be that may or may not be hidden at the laurels. Though when I quote from the text here, you'll see I'm being extremely kind by characterizing what he says as shedding light. Here goes. If I said there was something that happened years ago that might result in something being known that would be possibly interesting nowadays, sometimes that would give one a bit of information about things that might be going on nowadays that might be true enough. Wow, thanks for that crystal clear explanation, Mr. Robinson. Also, I'm pretty sure there's a typo in there that it's supposed to be something that would give one a bit of information rather than sometimes that would give one a bit of information. I suspect this is an uncorrected typo in the book, and it won't be the last one, uh, which I will discuss later on in the episode when Caroline Crampton comes aboard. To be fair to Mr. Robinson, he does impart one interesting and definitive piece of information. Mary Jordan was a spy, as the villagers of Holokey always suspected, but she was actually a spy on behalf of the British government. That's right. Mary was a double agent. Dun, dun, dun. So Tommy and Tuppence have a nice long jaw over all this, during which Tuppence informs Tommy that it seems someone may have tampered with true love, resulting in Tuppence falling into the monkey puzzle tree in the garden and nearly hurting herself quite badly. Then Tommy remembers, quote, that other thing that nearly came down on the top of me in the book room, which I don't think we were ever put on notice about, other than an electrician telling Tuppence early on in the book that Tommy was dropping things in the book room, rather heavy things too. This is one of those instances where you feel like Christy thinks she told us about an incident that she's referencing later, but she really didn't. It's just as disorienting here as it was when it happened in Elephants Can Remember, and just as irritating. But the important point is that Tommy and Tuppence realize they really must be onto something here, <laughs> despite how much they really have just been puttering around. So Tuppence goes off and for the second time in this book, she speaks to an elderly lady in the village named Mrs. Griffin, who tells her that she believes Alexander Parkinson died after eating, quote, some food he had on a picnic, end quote. Well, that sounds a lot more suspicious than dying of leukemia. So Mrs. Griffin directs Tuppence towards some old folks in the area who might know more about events in the distant past. And I will give Christy this. I'm super glad we did not have to witness Tuppence interview all those people at old age homes and whatnot, though we will be subjected to such a scene later on. This time, we catch up with Tuppence after she's conducted all these interviews, and we come away with a few key pieces of information, or at least what's presented as key information. Apparently, there was a census conducted on the night Mary Jordan accidentally ate those foxglove leaves, which was the night of a big house party at the Laurels. So that means that it might be possible for Tommy to obtain a record through official channels of exactly who was in the house on the night in question all those years ago. The us Alexander Parkinson was referring to when he said it was one of us. Tuppence also heard some story about a will that was hidden in a Chinese vase. I'm just going to spoil away here and say that is a red herring. Uh, and also about, quote, Oxford and Cambridge, though I don't see how anyone would know about things being hidden in Oxford and Cambridge. It seems very unlikely. Perhaps someone had a nephew undergraduate, said Tommy, who took something back with him to Oxford or Cambridge. Hmm. Have we come across the words Oxford and Cambridge before? Just throwing that out there. 
In the next chapter, Tommy and Tuppence disembowel, that's how they put it, poor Matilde, the rocking horse, unearthing all sorts of trash <laughs> in the hollow cavity in her stomach, an India rubber ball, a moth-eaten moldy scarf, the wheel from some child's toy, a bunch of spiders, a needle book, a French grammar, and at long last, something that feels at first like a dead animal skin, but turns out to be a pocketbook, quite good leather once. And they take it outside to inspect its contents, and they see notes that appear to pertain to secret meetups in London, which lines up with what they know about Mary Jordan. But they're afraid to look at any of the other papers in the wallet for fear they'll disintegrate. So they essentially spirit that wallet away. And when they return to the house, uh, Tuppence finds that Mrs. Griffin has thoughtfully sent along an album of old photographs, which includes some snapshots of the comely Mary Jordan. And Tommy then goes to see Colonel Pikeaway, who we also know from Passenger to Frankfurt, among other books. And the Colonel shows Tommy yet another photo of Mary Jordan. Cool, cool, cool. Colonel Pikeaway also finally puts a name to the person who was apparently at the root of all the bad doings in Mary Jordan's day. This would be Jonathan Kane, who was a fascist in this pre-World War I time. Quote, the time before we knew what Hitler was going to be like and all the rest of them. The time when we thought that something like fascism might be a splendid idea to reform the world with. Uh, Pikeaway specifies that Kane's name is spelled K-A-N-E, but then just in case we didn't get it, he says that he would rather it were spelled C-A-I-N. Ho ho. Christy tries so hard in this long rambling monologue of Colonel Pikeaway's to make a connection between Jonathan Kane, the fascist, and some amorphous, vaguely neo-fascist notion of bad things happening in the here and now of 1973. At one point, Pikeaway even seems to allude to a chemical that will do the reverse of what Benvo does in Passenger to Frankfurt. He says, things that can change a character can perhaps turn a good man into a fiend and usually for the same reason, for money. Okay? Turning back to Tuppence in Hollow Key, she goes to a photography shop in town and has an utterly pointless conversation with the man who works there, after which she returns home and finds poor Isaac Bodlicott, the aged gardener, lying dead in a heap near the door to KK, the greenhouse. Isaac has been coshed over the head, which for some reason Tommy isn't convinced is all that meaningful. Tommy literally says at one point, he was a very old man and possibly that had something to do with it. Uh... What? It makes no sense, Tommy. He was coshed over the head. Tommy tells Tuppence not to get so worked up that this probably has nothing to do with them, which is also very odd. Obviously, Tommy is extremely wrong. And this is the point in the story where a number of very young people break unexpectedly into the narrative. The first is Henry, who is the great nephew of Isaac Bodlicott. Tuppence asks Henry to be on the lookout for information as to anything that happened at the Laurels long ago. And Henry enlists the help of a whole posse of friends, and they all come to confront Tuppence. Alas, this scene really leads nowhere because all they do is tell Tuppence to go to the Pensioner's Palace Club on the outskirts of town where she can interview more old people. So to the PPC, Tuppence goes, and unfortunately this time, so do we. Uh, so together with Tuppence, we have to endure listening to a bunch of old fogies sing It's a Long Way to Tipperary, which is, of course, a signature song of the First World War. They inundate her with all sorts of information about something that may have been hidden at the laurels at the relevant time long ago. 
But as far as I can tell, it's all utterly useless because in the next scene, when Tuppence is relaying what she learned to Tommy, she casually mentions that, oh, she also found something else in another one of those books from the stash of children's books in their house. And it's this information that turns out to be important, not anything the old people told her. Tuppence says it's something I found on a dirty bit of paper shoved into one of the books upstairs. I don't know if it was Katrina or whether it was in a book called Shadow of the Throne. Katrina is Robert Louis Stevenson's sequel to Kidnapped, of course. And while Tommy tells us Shadow of the Throne is a book about the French Revolution that he read as a boy, I actually couldn't find out anything about it, no matter how hard I Googled. So if anyone can shed light on what that book is, I would love to know. But in any case, on this dirty bit of paper were written three words, grin, hen, and low. The low is spelled L-O. And this is pretty much the point at which we are just utterly bewildered as to what could possibly be going on here. So let's take a look at two very meager clues I managed to retrieve from this mess of a plot. Clue number one is grin, hen, and low. Well, those three words don't really seem to make much sense, but I think we can reasonably assume it was Alexander Parkinson who wrote those words. And given that he amused himself by making up a code in the Black Arrow, perhaps we should see if there's any manipulation that can be applied to these three words. Hmm. Maybe they aren't words at all. Maybe they're three syllables of the same word. In that case, we can deduce that what we have here is the single word Lohengrin. And hey, that would be another Wagner reference because Lohengrin is the title of a non-ring cycle Wagner opera. And that would make it very likely that we're onto something since we know from Passenger to Frankfurt that Christie, and apparently late career Christie in particular, really does love her Wagner. Lohengrin, of course, is a reference to a swan because Lohengrin is the knight of the swan. And where have we seen swans before? All right, clue number two is a rare instance of Christie quite clunkily layering in a clue. I think most readers, not just an astute reader, but a conscious reader, will have seen this coming a mile away. The stools that Tuppence found in KK were called Cambridge and Oxford, and they had a swan design on them. Furthermore, when they were first described, the fact that you could stuff things into them was mentioned. So the deduction here is that Lohengrin is referring to those stools, as was the phrase Oxford and Cambridge that Tuppence picked up from one of those aged residents of the town. So there must be something crucial hidden in Cambridge, since Tuppence actually accidentally smashed <laughs> Oxford and it broke in two. So we know that there's nothing hidden in that stool. Cambridge has got to be the hiding place. All right, so let's get into the world as it actually is. <laughs> I do apologize for those two rather pathetic clues. Tommy and Tuppence decide to look inside Cambridge the next day, and they troop on out to the garden with Albert, who I haven't even mentioned until now. But yes, their faithful Albert is still with them, of course. Also, uh, Clarence is there, and Clarence is one of Henry's friends. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that Hannibal is also there, Tommy and Tuppence's trusty Manchester Terrier. And my apologies for excising Albert and Hannibal from the summary this far. It really is a shocking oversight. But Tommy and Tuppence take a look inside the Cambridge stool, eventually retrieving a dark tarpaulin package from inside the stool. And we learn later that what's inside the package are letters, quote, somewhat perished, end quote, similar to the contents of that wallet they unearthed from inside Matilde, the rocking horse. 
So having just retrieved this package, Hannibal begins to bark and growl. And it seems that he's convinced someone is hiding in a great big clump of pampas grass in the garden. Tommy thinks maybe it's just a rabbit because of course Tommy does. He's always looking for the most deflating spin he can put on anything that happens in the course of this book. But then two gunshots ring out from the pampas grass and someone is running away with Hannibal hot on his or her heels. Poor Tuppence has been grazed by one of these bullets just below the shoulder, though it's nothing that an outsized Band-Aid won't fix, according to her. Always a brave one, our Tuppence. And we cut to Tommy conferring with our Inspector D'Histoire. At last, we have an inspector on the scene. This is Inspector Norris. Unfortunately, the man who shot at them got away. At least they think it's a man. No one really got a good look at him, but that was their general sense. And Inspector Norris has hired a man named Angus Crispin to help keep Tommy and Tuppence safe. Though we know from the start that this isn't his real name. Crispin will be pretending to be a fill-in gardener for the time being. And when he arrives, he'll mention having worked for a Mr. Solomon. Inspector Norris warns Tommy, if anyone comes along and says he can do some jobbing gardening for you and doesn't mention Mr. Solomon, in that case, I wouldn't accept him. That's just a word of warning. So then, 42 pages from the end of the book, in the final eighth of our story, a Miss Mullins appears, who is described as a tall, masculine-looking woman, and Miss Mullins offers her services for help in the garden. Oh, and also, Hannibal can't stand her on sight. So I think it's time for three more shabby clues, <laughs> which form a sad little mini bridge to connect us on over to the very end of the story. Clue number three, Miss Mullins is described as a tall, masculine-looking woman. Well, the deduction here is that this means she can pose as a man. And that makes it very likely that she is the attempted murderer of Tuppence, who everyone assumed was a man. Clue number four, Miss Mullins never references a Mr. Solomon when she offers her services. Deduction, because she's the murderer, of course. She's got to be a baddie. Clue number five, Hannibal cannot stand Miss Mullins. Our deduction, just as in Elephants Can Remember, is that a dog's unerring instincts lead us in the right direction pretty much every time. Hannibal recognizes Miss Mullins from the attempted murder of Tuppence, and we all just need to listen to Hannibal. Believe canines, I think, is a uh, good motto to follow. So getting back into the final section of the world as it actually is... Miss Mullins leaves, and later that day, Angus Crispin arrives, mentioning Mr. Solomon, just like he's supposed to. Tommy and Mr. Crispin stroll around the garden, talking flowers and shrubs and 70-odd-year-old espionage-related mysteries, you know, usual gardening stuff. And then the next day, or at least it seems to be the next day, since things are finally moving quickly in this story, Miss Mullins returns while Toppins is still in bed, recovering from that gunshot wound. It seems Miss Mullins has a gardening book she wants to show Tuppence, and she's more than happy to pour out some coffee for the both of them, though she does seem eager for Albert to leave the room. And then after pouring out the coffee, she stumbles, breaking a vase, and it's all very weird. And it's weird because she's obviously trying to poison Tuppence, but fortunately Hannibal is there to break out of a poorly latched bathroom door and sick himself on Miss Mullins for the second time. And then Mr. Crispin is there, and he recognizes Miss Mullins, who he calls Dodo. Miss Mullins tries to escape, but both Hannibal and Mr. Crispin are hot on her heels, and we know she's not going to get very far. 
So all is well, the plot has been foiled, even if Tommy and Tuppence don't completely understand what the plot is, and nor does the reader at this point. Then we fast forward a week or so to a visit at the Laurels by Tommy and Tuppence's daughter, Deborah, and Deborah's three children, Andrew, Janet, and Rosalie. Caroline and I will talk in a bit about the continuity issues when it comes to their ages, in particular Deborah's. But for now, let's just note that Deborah scolds Tommy and Tuppence about having had another adventure. I myself was gratified that she clearly has learned at this point about the NRM business, since that book ends with Derek and Deborah being so smug about their poor, boring parents who haven't had much to do during the war, unlike them. Then there's a bit more inconsequential chatter. So much inconsequential chatter in this book. Uh, But we do learn that Tommy and Tuppence have settled on Swallow's Nest for the name of the house where they have decided to stay, despite all the, you know, murder and attempted murder and hidden spy stuff that's been going on there. And then we fast forward one final time, about, I'd say, another week or so, to a nice dinner that Mr. Robinson has invited them to. It's not just Tommy who's here at this dinner, but Tuppence too. And I love that at long last, we have Tuppence included in one of these cozy little covert chats among aged spies. Hooray! Uh, Hannibal also gets to be there. He's very much doted over. He even gets his own plateful of liver. We learn that Mr. Crispin, who's also in attendance, is actually Mr. Horsum, who we met before in, you guessed it, Passenger to Frankfurt. So much shared DNA between Passenger to Frankfurt and Pastern of Fate. (laughs) Unfortunately, I think to both books' detriment. But Mr. Robinson has some splaining to do. And the first thing we learn is that he himself is a Parkinson. My own great-grandmother was a Parkinson, he says. So this is why he knows a few definitive facts about what went down at the Laurels slash Swallow's Nest. Mary Jordan, who was actually known as Molly, was definitely spying for the British government. Her mother was Austrian, which is why she spoke German fluently. Apparently, there were quite a few baddies residing in Holokey before the First World War. I'm quoting now from Mr. Robinson. A good-looking naval commander came of a good family. Father had been an admiral. A good doctor practicing there, much loved by all his patients. They enjoyed confiding their troubles to him. And later, before the Second World War, Mr. Kane, spelt with a K, lived in a pretty thatched cottage by the harbor and had a particular political creed. So apparently, Jonathan Kane came after the naval commander and doctor, which I found totally confusing because when Colonel Pikeway referenced Jonathan Kane, I thought he was making it very clear that Jonathan Kane was around before the First World War and contemporaneous with all this Mary Jordan business. Maybe I was misreading that, but I think that this might just be one more continuity error among many. Let's just wrap this up. (laughs) It was the daughter of this evil local doctor who killed Mary Jordan. She was staying at the Laurels slash Swallow's Nest on the night in question. This was confirmed by that census that got so much page real estate and never really paid off. This woman was responsible first for planting the foxglove and spinach leaves too close together in the garden at the Laurels, and then for taking the mixture of foxglove and spinach into the kitchen on the day in question. And then on that same day, Mary Jordan was poisoned with more digitalis by way of a cocktail glass that was swept off a table and smashed by accident that same night. What about Alexander Parkinson, you might ask? How did he actually die? When exactly did he die? I could not tell you. We never find out. 
But we do learn from Mr. Robinson that Miss Mullins, our present-day murderer, was, quote, a granddaughter or great-niece of the original criminal doctor. And before the Second World War, she was a disciple of Jonathan Cain. Sure. <laughs> he also says that she was definitely the one who coshed poor Isaac. We never do learn why Isaac had to die. I suppose because he was always poking about KK where these documents were hidden. Maybe he even knew something about them. It's totally unclear and unresolved, as is the notion that Miss Mullins tampered not only with a pane of glass in KK and with true love, but presumably with a bookshelf or something in the room where Tommy had his mishap with the children's books. One gets the feeling Christy simply forgot about these details as she was wrapping up. And unfortunately, no one reminded her. It seems that some sort of nucleus of evil had recently formed again in Hollow Key, with another of these charismatic political figures, a la Jonathan Cain, looking to assume the mantle of the genial politician, but actually having sinister motives. Do we know who this person is who only gets mentioned on the third to last page of the book? Nope. <laughs> but the crisis has been averted somehow due to those letters whose contents are never shared or even described. So that's good, I suppose. We also never get clarity on what, if anything, was learned from the first packet of letters unearthed by Tommy and Tuppence in Matilde. It seems that the packet of letters they retrieved from Cambridge are the ones that mattered. And perhaps the letters that were retrieved from Matilde would have crumbled to dust the second that they were handled. So they didn't matter at all. It just bothers me that we have two discrete letter finding sequences and the first of them seems to be irrelevant slash forgotten by the end of the novel but quite honestly that is par for the course at this point and if christy is not losing her marbles i certainly am by the way i love the fact that mr robinson says that even though hollow key is now cleared of this nucleus of evil they believe that the evil cabal has simply moved to the neighborhood of bury saint edmund's so poor Barry St. Edmunds, <laughs> but Tommy and Tuppence are safe because Mr. Robinson and friends will be, quote, keeping an eye on you. It's every paranoid elderly person's dream. <laughs> and finally, at long last, our book ends with Hannibal the dog being faux knighted by Mr. Robinson, who was apparently doing a bit of nostalgic reading himself, having recently read Stanley Wyman's Count Hannibal. I hereby create you a count of this realm, he says, to which Tuppence replies. Count Hannibal, isn't that lovely? What a proud dog you ought to be. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the last thing Agatha Christie ever wrote. The end. Okay, listeners, it is time to talk more BritBox, which is such an easy thing for me to do because I watch so many of my Agatha Christie mysteries on BritBox's streaming platform. I already talked a little bit about how much I enjoyed Why Didn't They Ask Evans, a BritBox original. But I, of course, regularly peruse the David Suchet Poirot series, the Joan Hickson Miss Marple series. And then, of course, there are all the non-Christie titles. I'm really just scratching the surface here. But the first one that comes to mind is the Father Brown series. 
I've talked before a little bit about G.K. Chesterton's Father Brown. Christie herself spoofed Father Brown in the Partners in Crime short story collection, a Tommy and Tuppence special, much happier Tommy and Tuppence than the one I just finished reviewing, in fact. And fortunately for you, if you become a monthly subscriber, I can offer you a 50% discount off your first month. You just have to use the coupon code AGATHA, A-G-A-T-H-A, when you are signing up over at BritBox.com. This is a special limited time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Again, head on over to BritBox.com and use promo code AGATHA to get 50% off your first month and start watching a ton of mysteries. Normally, I would talk adaptations now, but this is infamously one of the four Christie titles never to have been adapted. The four members of this ignominious group are Death Comes as the End, Destination Unknown, Passenger to Frankfurt, and Postern of Fate. We do, of course, have two different small screen adaptations of Tommy and Tuppence in the English language, the 1983 London Weekend television adaptation of The Secret Adversary, and then most of the Partners in Crime short stories, and then the more recent 2015 adaptation via the BBC of The Secret Adversary and NRM. In general, it's the earlier Tommy and Tuppence that's gotten more love, and perhaps rightly so. By the pricking of my thumbs has only ever been adapted as a Miss Marple episode on ITV's Marple series. And as my good friend Mark Aldridge points out in Agatha Christie on screen, it is probably only completists clamoring for Posture of Fate's adaptation. You know I couldn't get through an episode without using the phrase, my good friend Mark Aldridge. I will go ahead and admit to being one of those completists. I am a fan with reservations of the earlier Francesca Annis and James Boric series, but I think the more recent series was a misstep. And the depiction of the Beresford's marriage in the ITV Marple episode of By the Pricking of My Thumbs was simply an outrage. I don't think Tommy and Tuppence have ever truly been brought to life, and I would love for them to have their day in a modern and knowing and lavish and flashy Adaptation. And I would love for Postern of Fate to be streamlined, spiffed up, and just generally beaten into shape <laughs> as the final installment of that series. I actually do think it could be done, and it would be really, really interesting and I think gratifying to see that happen. But alas, for now, we have no adaptations to speak of. So it is now time for me to welcome my esteemed co-host, Caroline Crampton, and to talk about the rankings for this novel. Caroline Crampton is the writer, producer, and host of one of the greatest podcasts out there, in my opinion, She Done It. If you're listening to me right now, and of course you are listening to me right now, uh, then there's a very good chance you're already a She Done It listener because Caroline's podcast is all about not just Agatha, but Dorothy and Nayo and Gladys and Josephine and lots and lots of other mystery writers and mystery subjects in general. And about a year and a half ago, Catherine and I were lucky enough to appear on She Done It in an episode titled The Christie Completists. 
And I think Caroline was trying to figure out why the heck we were doing what we've been doing on our podcast for so many years now. I'm not sure we explained ourselves fully, but we had a lovely time on her show. And we'd been meaning ever since to have her on ours. And I'm glad to be able to make that happen today. Though, of course, I wish Catherine were here to do it with us. Welcome, Caroline. And thank you so much for co-hosting this episode with me today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I can truly say a dream come true. Um, it's it's delightful to be here, albeit under different circumstances than we would prefer. And you've already used our favorite word, delightful. So we're off to a, a rollicking start. <laughs> I'm going to. I, I actually think I I might not be using it as much as I normally do in one of these episodes. I feel like I have to add an extra thank you for the fact that you agreed to rank not just any old Christie with me, but Postern of Fate. Well, which is nearly universally recognized as one of Christie's weakest novels, uh, if not her weakest novel. But we shall see. That is exactly we what we are see. right going to determine here today. Let's keep an open mind. Okay, so let's just get into this. I'd like to start, as I so often do, with the Christie scholar John Curran, who calls this book the poorest of her career, with the possible exception of the curiosity that is passenger to Frankfurt, one which in retrospect should never have been published. By any standard, a sad end to a wonderful career. And he continues, although H.R.F. Keating reviewed Posturn of Fate charitably in the Times with the ambiguous phrase, she still skims like a bird, there is no doubt that it is the weakest book Christie ever wrote. For even the most devoted reader of Christie, Posturn of Fate is a challenge. Despite its intriguing premise, Mary Jordan did not die naturally. It was one of us. I think I know which. The book never explores this enigma in any organized way. The investigation, such as it is, consists mainly of pointless and long-winded conversations, endless reminiscences, and far too many many inconsequential characters. What little plot there is would have benefited from the excision of at least 100 pages, but it is doubtful if even this ruthless exercise would make any overall difference. Next up, we have Robert Barnard, who can be quite nasty and pithy in his pronouncements on Christie novels, and he's at his nastiest and pithiest here. This is what he had to say. The last book Christie wrote, best and easily forgotten. That's all he had to say. We also have Christie biographer Laura Thompson, who I think tries to be as constructive as possible in her criticism in her excellent biography. She calls the plot barely fathomable. Indeed, it is scarcely existent. But it wasn't all bad. Maurice Richardson, in a contemporary review of the book at its time of publication in The Observer, uh, this is what he wrote. Now in their 70s, the Beresfords, that amateur detective couple of hers, whom some of us found too sprightly for comfort, have acquired a Proustian complexity. A code message in an Edwardian children's book puts them on the murder of a governess involved in a pre-1914 German spy case. Past and present go on interlocking impressively. Despite political naivety, this is a genuine tour de force with a star part for Hannibal, the Manchester Terrier. Proustian complexity, that's about the nicest way of describing this book, as I think you can <laughs> get. So many Madelines consumed by Tommy and yes. Tubbins in the course of this book. I would love to ask you, Caroline, what your overall impression was upon reading the apparently Proustian posture in a fate. Did she skim like a bird? <laughs> <laughs> I still don't know what that means. I Me neither. I saw that in John's book, and I've been thinking about it a lot, and I'd, what birds skim? I really don't <laughs> don't know what he was driving out there, but I think I agree that it's unclear if that's praise or not. <laughs> no, so I have to say I approached this with trepidation. It's been years since I read this book. I'm constantly rereading Christie for one reason or another, sure. but I always skip this one. 
So I was actually, before I sat down and read it, tried to remember when had I read it before. And I think it was when I was a teenager, when I was getting as many Christie's as I could out of the library and devouring them. And I remember being quite creeped out by this book, both in the sense that some aspects of it are creepy, but also in the sense that um, I didn't really understand what the writer was on about and it didn't make a lot of sense to me and it, it felt uncomfortable compared to some of the other ones that I'd read. And so I went into it with all of that baggage expecting not to have a good time and actually surprised myself a little bit in that there were elements of it that I liked more than I thought I would. So it was a more positive experience than I was expecting. I can say that much at least. It's funny. I can absolutely say that too. I think I had such low expectations and yes, such trepidation going into it, given what a bet noir this book is, mm. I think, within the Christie canon, that I was pleasantly surprised because I didn't enjoy it as much as I enjoy a regular Christie or certainly a crown jewel Christie, but there were moments of enjoyment and more than a few of them, actually. Yes. And, and it's funny, but you, you were saying, um, uh, trying to remember the first time you read the book. And as you said that, I hadn't even thought about this before, but I was thinking to myself, well, when was the first time I read this book? Because I too have only read it once before reading it for this episode. And I actually had a searing memory that just came back to me. I believe it or not was in England and I was in college. I did a semester at Oxford, which I have referenced before on the podcast. And before the semester began, it was the Trinity term at Oxford. We took a bus tour of York and Durham mm -hmm. uh, in the north of England. And I remember taking a bunch of Agatha Christie's in the bus and reading them and sort of passing them among a group of friends. And we would all just read Christie's. And I remember specifically including Posture and a Fate because it was one of the few I had not read yet. I also remember that Sparkling Cyanide was definitely in there. And it was an oddity even then. And I remember it was framed that way to me by one of my other Christie loving friends who said, oh, you got to read that one. It's crazy. I mean, it doesn't, it basically doesn't make any sense. And I remember already approaching it with that baggage, even the first time that I read it. So this is another one of those books that I think there's so much kind of super textual context surrounding this mm. book that it is hard to engage with it on its own terms. But if you do, I think there are flashes of the Christie brilliance and then just moments of readerly enjoyment. So perhaps we will be able to highlight some of those. Let's just go through our ranking categories as we always do on this show. I'll start us off with plot mechanics. And when it comes to plot mechanics, I don't think this novel does very well. Um, <laughs> I think plot is going to be a pretty rough category for Posture and of Fate, and I don't think that will surprise anyone. I think it's actually helpful to compare the plot of Elephants Can Remember, which we just covered with the plot of this novel, because a lot of the issues I had with that plot I have here, except a lot worse. And I remember talking about how simplistic Christie's puzzle mystery was and Elephants Can Remember, how it hinged on a few obvious clues and how it would have made a better short story than a full-length novel. But here, we don't even have a puzzle mystery fit for a short story. There's an opening bit of intrigue, and it is a legitimately good hook. So let's just acknowledge that. Christie was capable of providing an excellent way into a mystery right up to the very end, to this very last book. It's ingenious that this dusty book in this dusty old collection in this neglected house should contain a coded accusation of murder, and then further that the child who wrote that accusation should be discovered to have died an early death. 
That is intriguing. It's creepy. It's a fantastic start. And I have to imagine if Christy had been writing this book even five years earlier, she would have done so much more with it because it just doesn't really go anywhere. And we don't have many clues or, or any sort of functional puzzle mystery. But the other thing that I think we should be clear about is that it's probably not fair to judge this book as a puzzle mystery, even as Mark and I were doing for Elephants Can Remember, because this is not a Poirot novel. This is a Tommy and Tuppence novel. And Tommy and Tuppence always straddled the line between thriller and mystery. And I'd even argue they edged much more into thriller than mystery in those earlier forays of Christie's. And that's really what we have here. It's just that when it comes to what Christie usually does in her thrillers, she's not even pulling that off because her early thrillers, they might be zippy, they might be silly and frothy, but they made sense. And they had a beginning, a middle, and an end. And this one seems to have a beginning and then a middle that just sort of trails off into the pages stopping. I think that that's also difficult. And the book that I would actually use to compare it to in terms of a thriller is Passenger to Frankfurt, which actually has a lot of commonalities with this book, uh, both as to theme and even character. And I really did not like Passenger to Frankfurt whatsoever, but that book was a much more functional thriller than this book is. And it was written a couple of years earlier. So I think by comparing it as puzzle mystery to Elephants Can Remember and thriller to Passenger to Frankfurt, we can really see how this book fails. Yeah, I similarly really struggled to assess it even on this category because Mm -hmm. I just felt like there wasn't any material to do so. I absolutely agree with you. And this was one of my pleasant surprises on rereading this book is that the setup is good. Like, I don't think it's even just okay. I think it's good. Me too. The, The idea of the coded message hidden in the children's book, very creepy, could really be well thematically developed when you think about all the commentary she's got about aging and nostalgia and so on in the book. Could be great. And then it just entirely fizzles out. I've also always been very sensitive, shall we say, to any intrusion by espionage in Christie. I am just generally not a fan of that. Mm -hmm. Even the ones that could be classified as maybe legitimately a puzzle mystery. As soon as someone is revealed as being a secret agent or something, I just roll my eyes. It's just not, it's not my thing at all. I've always felt a little bit like it's just a really convenient get out, isn't it? Your plot's got a bit complicated. You're not quite sure how you're going to maneuver it. So just revealing someone to have a secret identity or have been a spy all along is perhaps a handy way out of a tight corner. So when you get, (laughs) when you get that same default to the espionage stuff, in a book that doesn't even have really a functional plot before you get there. I'm lost really in terms of how, how you can judge that apart from just as not good. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, I agree. The The political intrigue in these Christie thrillers is where I often start rolling my eyes as well. And I've talked about this so many times in the podcast. I think at this point now, I do finally have the tools to give Christie her due. And it's coming a lot from my conversation with Jillian Gill, which was, mm. was such a good one because... Christy, I think anyway, is not at her best when she is discussing political matters and political ideology in her thrillers. And that's because the thrillers are meant generally to be frothy fun and to be a break from her puzzle mysteries. But she does actually have the skills and the tools to write a fascinating account of, of a political situation, which is what we mm-hmm. see in The Rose and the U-Trait. 
her Mary Westmacott, which is actually a book about a specific moment in British politics that taught me, it taught me history. I mean, I was able to use that as a historical text as an American who is not as familiar with what was going on, you know, in uh, 1940s parliamentary elections. It really took me there and I learned a lot about it. And it actually inspired me to do a little bit of research afterward when I read it and I found it fascinating. And you could, you could feel her political engagement in that book and her insight, perspicuity even, you know, into what was, what was happening. That's just not what she's doing in these thrillers. And I think many people don't find what she's doing all that interesting because it's surface, it's superficial. Dare I say she skims like a bird, you know, when she's... Yeah, maybe that's what he meant. Yeah. You're absolutely right. I think that where the political stuff is specific to a moment even if it's not referencing real events, if it's referencing, you know, feelings that were real, at least, Mm -hmm. then it gives you something as a reader. But I couldn't tell you after finishing Postern of Fate, you know, the shadowy, bad organisation that's behind everything. I don't even really know what they believed. I don't have a clear sense of what their ideology was. So without having even that basic detail about your enemy, I think it's very hard to relate to them at all. Yeah, I mean, the best that I can say about the vague political conspiracy that is underlying this book and that we get hints of at several points in the text, but it it really is never explained, is that it's passenger to Frankfurt-esque in that Mm. it seems to involve a charismatic politician who I suppose is coming up the ranks in England, who seems to be above board and a nice person, but is actually one of these proto-fascist, neo-Nazi-esque, you know, bring back the Hitler youth movement kinds of people, which we saw her deal with at least more centrally and more understandably in Passenger to Frankfurt. I still found it pretty preposterous in Passenger to Frankfurt, but I at least knew what she was talking about in Passenger to Frankfurt. But it seems to be the same sort of an idea that there are politicians who want to do bad things, but put a good face on it and they need to be brought down. And they're apparently going to be brought down by a bunch of letters that a spy secreted in an old rocking horse and a porcelain (laughs) stool in a shed like 70 years ago that Tommy and Tubbins have now unearthed. I mean, that too, I was, I was literally paging through the book before we started this conversation, Caroline, because I'm still not even entirely sure on the mechanics of what happened, because I think there are two separate moments when Tommy and Tuppence unearth a bunch of letters in Mathilde, right? The rocking horse, which is very much Christie's old rocking horse. And also, I think then Tommy just tells Colonel Pike away in a later scene, oh, and we also found another cache of letters within Cambridge, right? Which is this one of the two porcelain Lohengrin stools that was also sitting in KK, the, the old gardening shed. I mean, I, you know, you, st- you start not making sense as you use this word salad that Christie has created here in this yes. book. So those letters somehow are going to be indicative of a movement that this current movement is in inspired by and is descended from. And by having unearthed them, they're going to help bring down this nefarious political movement. That's as much as it's explained, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think honestly, you've you've tried to explain it a bit more than, uh, <laughs> than perhaps the book does. Like you've, you've kind of filled in more gaps and made it seem more coherent than it is. But again, there are 
there are like the seeds of good ideas in there. Like the finding something in a rocking horse Mm -hmm. in a different context could be a good plot development. That could be a good like deepening of the mystery. The idea that it's been there all along. It's been hiding in this innocent place. You know, if someone had hidden a murder weapon or something in there and a different kind of story, that could have been really exciting. But in this sense, it doesn't really do anything for you. I also, just to pick up on something you mentioned at the start, uh, when you were referencing John Curran's take on this book, where he says that you could perhaps cut a hundred pages out of this book mm-hmm. and maybe it would make more sense. I think I have to agree with him that that wouldn't have helped. Yeah. I, I do think you and Mark talked about this in the Elephants Can Remember book, that maybe that is a good short story that was unjustly extended into a novel. And you can see how in a shorter form, that could have been a really good Poirot short story. I don't think there is a good short story hidden in Postern of Fate. And I think that's quite telling when it comes to thinking about plot mechanics, that even if you isolate it down to the bare bones and take away all of the dialogue and description, I still couldn't really summarise it for you in a way that would make sense. I totally agree. There are so many Christie's at this point that Catherine and I have covered where we've said, well, this feels like it was a short story idea, or sometimes it actually was a short story. I believe Mm, when we first covered Dumb Witness, I wasn't even aware of the uh, original and before John Curran unpublished short story that it was based on. But the book felt to me like a short story that had just been expanded. And of course, that's exactly what it is. Dead Man's Folly is a novella that had been expanded. Expanded. She's done that before. And sometimes she does it well. You know, you could argue that Evil Under the Sun is Triangle at Rhodes tweaked a bit and then also expertly and, and magnificently expanded. Um, so she's a master of recycling and expanding. That is, though, a critique, I think, of some of her full-length novels. And it certainly was, if elephants can remember. But yeah, unfortunately, we just don't have that here. It's really premise. And then that's it. I mean, the the only other element of the central mystery that I should mention, we have the same means of murder as we do in the Miss Marple short story, The Herb of Death. It's not a particularly artful recycling even of The Herb of Death, but at least it's something we've seen Christie do before. And it puts us on a little bit of firm ground as to a Christie-esque mystery that we can hold on to in the story. But it's kind of mentioned a couple of times and there's not a lot made of it. We don't even really know how Alexander Parkinson died. It seems that he was poisoned as well, maybe at a picnic. It's barely mentioned. Yeah, this is, I think, part of what contributes to the incredibly unsettling experience of reading this book, is that you feel like you should know these things, but you just don't. Even if you've paid a lot of attention, you've been reading slowly and carefully, you will still not really understand these central points because it's just not explained well. And I think that is what gave me such a disconcerting feeling of reading it the first time, because I'd been reading tons of Christie out of order. I'd come to expect this sort of sharpness and specificity from them because that's there in a lot of the earlier books. And so I think I thought it was my fault that I didn't understand this book. I didn't know anything about the conditions in which it was written or even when it was written. So I think I thought I just didn't understand it, that it was too complicated for me or something. And so I think I developed a bit of an inferiority complex about it. Now, obviously reading it, knowing much more about it, I realised that no, she just doesn't explain these things. And that's why we don't know these crucial details such as how these murders happened, which you would think in a murder mystery or even a murder mystery adjacent thriller would be quite important to know. 
Right. And which she never would have left out had she had had all of her faculties. You know, we don't need to belabor the point, but I think this is where many people get annoyed at her editorial team because it's, you know, it's the whole issue of should this book have even been published? Should they have done a lot more work on it if they were going to publish it? Because it feels like perhaps they let Christy down by not making it better. And from what we know, it seems that they did try. I mean, Max Mallowan and and Rosalind did what they could. And I don't want to come down too hard on the editorial team because that is probably easier said than done. And I also think it's easier said than done to refuse a Christie for Christmas in 1973 yeah. when we are going on 50 years of this happening. So I understand why it happened. It just feels pretty unfortunate from our perspective that this book exists. And I think a lot of Christie fans share that perspective. And I'm glad that you had the same sort of discombobulating experience reading it because I did too. And I, and I had it a little bit with elephants can remember. And Mark and I talked about that, how there would be crucial information that would be referenced after the fact from interviews that happened that we were privy to in the book, but that information was never conveyed in the actual interview. (laughs) And I had to go back. It was honestly such a hard novel to summarize because I was like, did I just miss it because this is kind of a tough read and maybe I wasn't reading closely enough. And that definitely, it happens here in in terms of crucial information, like how did Alexander Parkinson really die? Why are we not getting that information? But then even just tiny things like there's a group of school children who appear late in the book and we seem to meet all of them. But then later Tuppence is telling Tommy about them. And she mentions all of these names that we never came across in that initial meeting. I'm like, wait, who, who are all these other children? Why is this so confusing? And it's just confusing because she's not explaining herself well, unfortunately. And it's a kind of meta sort of unsettling, isn't it? Because it's not intentionally creepy. It's not the writer developing an atmosphere of unease. It's actually just because it's difficult to understand. But I think I do agree with you on the matter of the editorial team and the people around Christie, because... I think they'd shown that they were pretty good at editing books, if you know what I mean. (laughs) Uh, You know, they'd had this incredibly fruitful partnership with her. Book after book had come out on time uh, without many major discrepancies, all this kind of stuff for years. So I think you sort of end up having to come to the conclusion that they were quite rightly in awe of their incredibly famous author. They were probably quite solicitous about health conditions, didn't want to rub it in her face that she was old now. And therefore there was a limit to how sort of strict they were going to be with her. And if she was very keen to do one last Christie for Christmas, they weren't going to stop her and nor probably could they without having some giant epic falling out. So you're left with the conclusion that it probably just would have been better if she hadn't wanted to do it rather than than if they'd stopped her. I agree. And I actually think it's worth paralleling that situation to the one surrounding the publication of Harper Lee's Go Set a Watchman. Mm. To be clear, we don't really know what went on behind the scenes to get that book published at the very end of Harper Lee's life. But my take on it is that That is a book that Harper Lee herself sat on for half a century. And only when she was very, very old and a lot of the people who had been protecting her for her life were no longer on this earth, did she then seem to change her mind and okay the publication of this book that she hadn't wanted published for so long. And that to me is very suspect and very sad if in fact 
she was being taken advantage of. We also don't, of course, know um, what Christie's mindset was at the end of her life when Poster and the Fate was being published. But if I had to guess, take a really educated guess, I'd say, yeah, she wanted to publish this book because that's what she did. She was a writer who published every year. And, you know, she would joke about being the sausage factory, but I think she took a lot of pride in doing that and in in being such a hard worker and putting out this material regularly. And it was important to her. And I have to imagine that it would have been saying no and that there wasn't anyone coaxing her into publishing it. It was more, well, are we going to block this? And I think that, again, that is such that is a lot more easily said than done. And it seems that ultimately after the publication of this book, then the family are the ones who put mm-hmm. the kibosh on this and said, okay, we're, we're just not going here anymore. And her health declined, her physical health to such a point that, you know, she, she wasn't able to publish any more books, even though she did have other ideas she was still tinkering with and toying with. And I'll talk about those in our next novel episode, since we are not yet done with Christy, thank God. But <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a tough situation. It's definitely a sticky one. I, I suppose we should rank plot mechanics and plot credibility in a moment. I just have two other points I wanted to make on plot credibility specifically. The passenger to Frankfurt-ness <laughs> of the political <laughs> intrigue, I think is a is a major problem when it comes to plot credibility, because even if she had explained it well, as she does in Pastor to Frankfurt, I, I don't necessarily believe in it or, or it's hard for me to swallow. So there's that issue. But th- this is something John Kern talks about. I found the handling of Isaac's death and the attempts made on Tuppence's life and maybe even Tommy's life, it's unclear. Those were also very hard to believe. This is what Kern writes of Isaac's death the most casual murder in the entire Christie canon. The sang-froid with which his murder is greeted is rivaled only by the casual attitude to, not to mention the implausibility of, the shooting of Tuppence. You know, I do appreciate that for once in a Christie thriller, a kosh on the head resulted in death. That is a point in favor of credibility. (laughs) Poor Isaac, but, uh, you know, he's the one who had to take it for the team. He actually died from being hit on the head, whereas Tommy and Tuppence have been hit on the head, mm, I don't know, a dozen times (laughs) within their lives. Never seems Um, to harm them, yeah. Never seems to harm them, yeah. I'd also add that it's not even just the final two attempts on Tuppence's life that feel ridiculous, and that is a shooting and a poisoning. But there's a first attempt that involves a pane of glass at the top of the greenhouse. This is Tuppence speaking. Mm -hmm. You know, it was trembling the other day a bit, had the twitches, well, it practically came down on my head, might have cut me to bits. For domestic thriller film aficionados, that is exactly how Julianne Moore dies in The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. Um, and it's a little bit akin to Tony Goldwyn's death in Ghost. Not very believable. Like we are, we are just not in very grounded territory here. It's all a bit ridiculous. And I know that comes with the territory when we're in Christie thriller land, but it really is pushing the envelope even for a Christie thriller. And then my last point is just that the coincidence of Tommy and Tuppence moving into this house, which just happens to be a hotbed of pre-World War One espionage activity. <laughs> this is a small quibble since coincidences also come with the territory of Christie thrillers and even Christie mysteries. But it still irks me because it could have been so easily rectified. And I think, you know, with all the hindsight of, of these years, if I were an editor who had Poster and a Fate sitting on my desk and I could <laughs> do what I wanted with it before it was going to be published, I would say, let's start earlier and let's have 
Tuppence or maybe even Tommy get some sort of a tip off about this place. Yes. And I could imagine Tuppence pushing Tommy into buying this house. And he's like, are you sure? I mean, we haven't really pulled the trigger on any of these houses. This is the one really. And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I want to move to this one. Or maybe an opening scene where Derek and Deborah and Betty are, are seeing them safely ensconced the old deers in their sunset home and the children leave and Tommy and Tuppence look at each other and go running for the bookshelves. And they're like, okay. And they're, you know, like dogs to a bone because they know that there's a mystery here that could have been so easy done and it would have done away with this very hard to swallow coincidence, which Christy brings up time and time again. There are so many characters in this book that are like, oh, well, elbow, elbow. I mean, you moved into this house because <laughs> you knew something was going on there, right? And they're like, nope, just a quinky dink. It's so frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's absolutely the kind of thing that you would expect and hope a good editor would point out early on in the process because I think we're sort of immune to a certain level of coincidence in a classic murder mystery but this just goes way too far and that they pile up but they you feel like you're wading through them by the end it feels like nothing but coincidences that all of this comes together in the way that it has not least the fact that you know somehow the descendant of the people who were involved originally is still around and still feels the same. And, you know, that also to me just feels like it stretches credibility. Yeah. I mean, Miss Mullins, the murderer appears in the book about 15 pages before she is identified as the murderer. It's the most rushed <laughs> job of the unveiling of a murderer that we get in any Christie. And it's, it's just terrible. Could I go as far to say that this book doesn't really have any credibility? I can't think of any aspect of it where I went, mm -hmm, yeah, totally, that would happen. Yeah. My first instinct was to give this book ones in plot mechanics yeah. and plot credibility, which we've never done. I don't know if we need to be that cruel, but I honestly don't think we can go much higher than two in either of these categories. I put down two when I was making my notes for this. I put down two, which I think, am I right in saying that two is the lowest you've ever gone on plot mechanics before? It is indeed. We have given a two in plot mechanics once before, and that would be for The Secret of Chimneys. <laughs> yes, um, I, I saw that and I thought, that feels right. That feels equivalent. <laughs> yeah, it feels equivalent. And we gave a two in plot credibility to the big four. Same, yeah. I think that we're being kind by not going even lower than in those two books, but but let's be kind to this final Christie ever written and do a two and a two for plot mechanics and plot credibility. That's remarkable. That, that really is where I ended up as well. So I'm glad that we are in agreement there. Okay, let's move on to the happiest category, <laughs> I yes. think, which is a running theme here for the late career Christies, because when it comes to series characters, there is, I think, always something to celebrate in an Agatha Christie. And this book is no exception. We get lots of callbacks to previous Tommy and Tuppen stories, The Secret Adversary, Partners in Crime, NRM. Oddly, this is something that John Curran picked up on as well, but it really drove me crazy as I was rereading. There are zero references to By the Pricking of My Thumbs, which came out just five yeah. years earlier. It's so bizarre. My theory is that this is a nod to the fact that one's short-term memory begins to fail as one gets older, meaning Tommy and Tuppence can remember their long-ago cases, but not, not their most recent one. I, I mean, dare I say, perhaps 
Christie's own short-term memory was failing and maybe she just didn't think of by the pricking of my thumbs. But it's really bizarre because we get moments like Tuppence telling Tommy, I went to look at some of the graves in the local churchyard, which is exactly what Tuppence did in By the Pricking of My Thumbs and got coshed over the head. And you would think Tommy would be like, no, don't go into the churchyard. You (laughs) got hit over the head so recently. And there's also another moment when Tuppence says that she and Tommy have to, quote, go back to the past to solve it, to where it happened and why it happened. That's a thing we've never tried to do before. And I wrote in my margins, that is literally what you did five years earlier and by the breaking of my thumbs. (laughs) It could also really help with what we were just talking about with the sort of credibility of them moving into this house as well, couldn't it? If Even if you're still going to go for the fact that that's a total coincidence, if you would say like, you know, we've had one hectic encounter with the past, let's not have another, you know, you could do that kind of foreshadowing. Mm -hmm. But just by sort of acting as if it never happened or even just forgetting completely that it ever happened, it definitely reads very strangely. And again, with my sort of initial experience of reading Christie completely out of order and at random, I don't think I realised for a long time the order in which these books are supposed to go. Right. Because the subsequent one doesn't reference the one that goes before. I don't think I realised that they went in that order. Yeah, it's very confusing and and kind of alarming, I think, to a Christie completist who is reading these in Mm. order. It, It makes me feel like, what am I doing with my life? She often makes continuity errors, a lot of which I find charming because she just couldn't be bothered. But this is a a graver error than that. Calling Joyce Lampriere Joan in subsequent novels is kind of funny um, and doesn't bother me too much. But this just feels like, again, she's losing the thread. And it, it, it reads as though she's forgotten that by the pricking of my thumbs was ever written. And honestly, that's possible. I hope that isn't the case, but that's certainly how it reads. One really fun fact I I came across as I was reading this, uh, drawing upon my knowledge as a Tommy and Tuppence aficionado, the secret adversaries mentioned a a bunch, you know, as is partners in crime and NRM, they really do come up a lot. And one time there's a reference to the woman who they were involved with in the secret adversary. And Tommy says, name like Jane Fish or something like that. Or was it Jane Whale? (laughs) It actually isn't Tommy saying that. Tommy then tells this person, it was actually Jane Finn. But what's great about the fact that Jane Fish was referenced first is that we know from Christie's autobiography, Jane Fish is the name Christie actually did overhear in real life when she was working on The Secret Adversary in, you know, like 1921 or whatever. And she altered it to Jane Finn uh, for her book. But I love that Jane Fish gets a little shout out there. And I, and I have to imagine that that was intentional on Christie's part. We've seen Christie use her fictional characters in these later books to opine about matters that were preoccupying her and to, quite frankly, use them as thinly veiled versions of herself. We saw that happen with Miss Marple in Nemesis. We saw it happen with Mrs. Oliver in Elephants Can Remember. And it very much happens here with Tuppence in Postern of Fate. But I would argue that this is one area where the book actually does it better than its predecessors, because this is something Christie's been doing where Tuppence is concerned. Mm. Again, as far back as The Secret Adversary, you know, Tuppence was young and pert and hopeful in that book, just like Christie. And now Tuppence is old, just like Christie. And we're told late in the novel that she has gray hair. She walks with a slight arthritic limp. She's always falling down and she's over 70. And it's actually startling when we're told that late in the novel, because even though we do understand that she's old, the way that she's depicted, I think, by the elderly Christie 
she seems younger and spryer than that. And I think that's quite touching because we always see ourselves as, I think, younger and more energetic than perhaps people perceive us from the outside. And I like the idea that we're seeing Christie's own mental self-image of herself as an old woman in Tuppence. Mm. Uh, and I think that's actually rather well done in the book. Yes, I think far and away, the sort of characterization and the development of Tommy and Tuppence in this book is its strongest part. And it's also always been my favorite thing about Tommy and Tuppence is that they change book to book, that they are rare among both Christie's detectives and recurring characters, but also just detectives and recurring characters in general, that they do grow and develop. So it does feel like each book sort of checks in on them at different stages of their life. And I've always really liked that about the series and its contrasts with, you know, the increasing absurdity of Poirot's immortality and the way he stays at the same age for five, six decades. <laughs> we, just don't, we just don't have that with Tommy and Tuppence because they do grow and they do age. But with that, you do get some little niggles. I, I, I think there is a bit of confusion about how old their children are. I think Deborah does develop some of Poirot's ageless condition because I think she's already an adult in NRM because she's described as being engaged in war work. Mm -hmm. um, and then in Post and Fate, she's nearly 40, I think. <laughs> uh, so I'm not quite, there's sort of meant to be about 30, 35 years between the, the two events of the two. So I don't quite understand how that, how that works. And therefore their grandchildren are the wrong age and, as well, you know. So that, that is a little bit, uh, takes you out of it slightly. But no, in general, I agree. And I think, you know, the way Tommy and Tuppence talk to each other, their dialogue still has a lot of that same sprightliness and uh, banter that we get right from the beginning of The Secret Adversary, where they're, you know, chatting in the cafe and wondering what they're going to do with their lives and how they're going to get money and be adventurers and all this. They still talk to each other a bit like that. They still got some of that rhythm to their speech. So then when you hear about their, you know, declining physical mobility. It's startling. It reminds you that things change and characters change and time passes and all of that. So I think that's actually pretty well done. I do think sometimes when Tuppence is sort of staring into the middle distance and thinking about the passage of time, that it gets a bit much. Sometimes you feel a bit like, a, you know, the experience of having a conversation with someone of any age and you feel like they're looking over your shoulder and they're talking to someone who isn't there. They're not talking to you in, in the room. They're talking mm -hmm. to someone else. Sometimes I feel a bit like that's what it's like to read Tuppence in this book. And, you know, that can be deliberate and can be for effect that, you know, she's reached that stage of life when the people she remembers are much realer to her than the people that she's confronted with on a day-to-day -day basis. Maybe that's also where Christy was and why she remembers Jane Fish, but not a book she published within the last five years mm -hmm. and so on. But yeah, it does all contribute to the slight feeling of unease I had throughout this book. It's just that feeling that Tuppence isn't quite there with you all the time. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a dreaminess and a distractedness to mm. this book overall. And I think we do even get that in her characterization of Tuppence at times. I agree, but I think it makes those moments when we get the old sparkle and verve of Tommy and Tuppence as a couple, it, it makes those moments, I think, shine even brighter mm. than perhaps they do in some of the earlier stories. I just wanted to highlight a couple of them because I completely agree with you, Caroline. I think the, this is the high point of the book. And to be clear, I think Christie's done it better 
in other books, but it is the best thing about Postern of Fate. Mm. We have uh, Tommy early on saying, I never know what you're up to, Tuppence, but I know the look in your eye when you are up to something. That's just so Tommy. Um, <laughs> I love this moment too. There, there were a couple of times I actually did chuckle to myself as I was reading this book. At one point, uh, this is Tuppence speaking. Do you think, said Tuppence with a voice that was more hopeful than despondent, that somebody was trying to put an end to me and loosened the glass skylight in the conservatory? so that it would fall on me. <laughs> that just that took me back to the partners in crime days where you know it, everything was just a lark. And then this was another moment that really did make me, uh, if not laugh aloud, chuckle aloud. Tuppence, dearest, said Tommy, you look excessively lovely to me. And there was a kind of roly-poly of a cobweb hanging down over your left ear, which is most attractive, rather like the curl that the Empress Eugenie is sometimes represented as having in pictures. You know, running along the corner of her neck, yours seems to have got a spider in it too. <laughs> and then she's like, oh, I don't like that. And she knocks it away. So just a lot of charming banter. I also really, really loved at the end of the book after the baddie, Miss Mullins, has been caught. Tuppence is feeling more like herself. And she says, it's extraordinary how hungry these excitements make one. Quite peckish, as one might say. Do you know, there's nothing I can imagine I'd like to eat more than a nice hot crab with a sauce made of cream with just a touch of curry powder. You're well again, said Tommy. I'm delighted to hear you feeling like that about food. <laughs> we know Christy loved her food, her cream. It's just, you know, there are moments like that. And I really did appreciate that. In so many ways, this book does not feel like a Christy mystery or even a Christy thriller because it's so dysfunctional, but it actually does feel like a Tommy and Tuppence mm. book. There's a lot to be said for that. That reminds me, actually, I did I did highlight one moment right near the end for the same reason, where Deborah says, uh, too many names, too complicated, who'd read a book like that? And then Tommy replies, you'd be surprised what people will read and enjoy. And I don't know if it's intended as a meta-commentary on the book. I choose to read it that way. That really tickled me as well, that uh, Tommy still got that comeback as saying like, well, you'd be surprised people have read other books about us and, uh, <laughs> and apparently enjoyed them. I love that. It's almost as though Christy is trolling us at that point, <laughs> yes. but in the most delightful way. I agree. I, I loved that moment. I was also very annoyed by Deborah being nearly 40. She was too old. She and Derek were too old in NRM mm. and now she is way too young, which just doesn't really makes sense. It was also odd when she and her three children come to visit, her husband isn't there. It felt yeah, like... Who, who is he? Who we is he? It, it felt like Christy just didn't want to have to make up a character. So he, he just <laughs> wasn't there. Derek never appeared. And I actually... So in doing online researches for this book, I'm getting this off of the Wikipedia page for Poster and a Fate. I approach Wikipedia with a lot of healthy skepticism, which is why I'm putting this out there as an open question. But it is asserted on that Wikipedia page that early on in the book, Deborah is said to have twins to have twin children, being a twin mm. herself. But then we meet her three children later on in the book and their ages are given. Andrew, 15, Janet, 11, and Rosalie, 7. So obviously she doesn't, she doesn't have twins. I did not pick up on that earlier twins reference. I don't know if you did, Caroline. I'm very glad you mentioned that, actually, because I was just rereading the last couple of chapters of the book before we started recording to make sure I had it all in my head. And I had that exact thought. I was like, hang on a second, I thought there were twins. And then I read the ages and then I thought, maybe I'm misremembering. Oh, I don't have time to go back and look now. <laughs> and I just left that moment confused. It was just hanging. And you would have thought after 
you know, spending time with this book again, knowing more about Christy and where she was in her life, I would have got over my ability to think that it's always my mistake with Poston and fate, rather than actually the book doesn't make any sense. But I did it again. I thought, oh, I must have misremembered. Well, and that's why it really is such a disorienting experience reading these books, because I think we're we're trained to view books with a certain amount of authority, right? And Mm. not to question their very substance or being. And it's really hard actually to do that. I mean, it's why I made the point on Elephants Can Remember, there's a postmodern meta kind of literary theory that I think could be applied to these books in which Christie is disorienting us as to the very text itself and sort of showing up the distance that really does exist all the time, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think Christie ever intended anything like that, but who cares? You know, authorial intention is one aspect of the reading experience. So we could use these books books for that sort of a commentary. And I think you absolutely could do that with Posture and a Fate. But that makes me feel better because I did not pick up on that earlier. I at least didn't remember that earlier Twins reference. So that is another continuity error we have in this book. Another one mm-hmm. that bothered me is that we're told that Tommy and Tuppence lived in a house called Barton's Acre before they moved into this house. But then there's a very specific reference by Tommy when he's speaking with Colonel Pikeway to the fact that they lived in a flat and their rent was yeah. too high which is why they moved to this house. And again, it seems as though by the pricking of my thumbs never happened in the world of posture and of fate, but they very much were living in a house and by the pricking of my thumbs, they were not living in a flat, or at least that's how I read by the pricking of my thumbs. So that too felt like a continuity error and something that really should have been cleaned up by an editorial team. And it's just very frustrating. But yeah, I do appreciate all of the Tommy and Tuppence moments. I also like that Betty gets two mentions because she was left out of By the Pricking by Thumbs. Mm. It felt like in By the Pricking by Thumbs, Betty's existence had been forgotten. But fortunately, Christy has remembered here, she has moved to East Africa, where she seems to be doing an anthropological study on how people live in Africa. As Tuppen says, a lot of young people are very keen on that. She's a darling and very happy. <laughs> and I would just like to give Christy credit here because I harp a lot about her depiction of adopted families. This is a very positive depiction of an adoption situation because Betty is quite famously or infamously adopted at the end of NRM. Tommy does call her our adopted daughter. He qualifies it, but I think that Mm. it's done in a way that uh, Christy would very much approve of. It's kind of proof that they are good adoptive parents. And there's clearly a lot of love between Betty and her parents in, in those two glancing references. So I really liked that. I love that we get Albert once more. Yes. Their devoted henchman. He is still the valet. He is helping them out and cooking dubious dinners for them. We learn that his wife uh, is now some years deceased. And it's funny, but that too was pointed out as a continuity error. I think that originally his wife was called Amy in this book, but then she was referred to as Millie in previous texts. But in my copy, she's referred to as Millie. So perhaps that is a mistake that has been rectified, which makes me wonder why other mistakes have not been fixed. (laughs) But to close out the series-long character conversation, we of course have a few shadowy governmental types that we've seen in books before. There is Mr. Robinson, who appears in Cat Among the Pigeons at Bertram's Hotel and Passenger to Frankfurt. He is very chatty in this book compared to uh, his previous outings. He has to be to explain what the hell is going on. Oh my God. He's still big and yellow. That is mentioned many times as it always is in the case of Mr. Robinson. And there's a lot of pondering as to his nationality. Quoting here from Christie. 
He might have been anything. Tommy had a feeling he was probably foreign, a German perhaps, or an Austrian, possibly a Japanese, or else he might be very decidedly English. Okay. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Let's just move right along. He does, I've noted this before, but worth noting again, he single-handedly unites the Poirot verse, the Marple verse, and the Beresford verse. Mm. That is very exciting. Um, I always enjoy a crossover moment. That one. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Colonel Pikeaway. uh, He appears in Cat Among the Pigeons and Passenger to Frankfurt. He is still sitting in an office full of smoke, which is based on Max Mallowan and Stephen Glanville's office. Apparently, their office was also full of smoke. And this is actually a true laugh aloud moment. I did not just chuckle, but at the end of the book, when Tommy and Tuppence are attending a dinner with Mr. Robinson and Colonel Pikeaway and Henry Horsum. We'll get to in a moment. Tommy offers Colonel Pikeaway a cigarette, to which he responds, quote, with an expression of surprise, I never smoke after dinner. Um, I just thought <laughs> yes. that was that was a, a funny little moment because that is his defining characteristic that he smokes. Like, that's he it. He is a smoker, yes. <laughs> and Henry Horsum, we saw in Passenger to Frankfurt, he appears here as Angus Crispin, which I like to think is Christie shouting out her fellow mystery novelist, Edmund Crispin. Mm. I'm a big fan of his. He, it's funny because he goes back to being referred to as Crispin, even after we find out that he's Horsum. At, at one point, <laughs> Christie says, Crispin Horsum with a hyphen. And then she's just like, oh, forget it. She goes back to Crispin, which is pretty funny. That's one of those moments where I, I think it's charming that, that Christie just can't be bothered. But he's there to protect Tommy and Tuppence. They don't overwhelm the book. I mean, maybe they should have because they they could have explained a little bit better, but they are there and we've seen them before. So that should just be noted. The final moment I just want to note is this odd little reference to a real life activity of Christie's brother, Monty, when he returned to England from Africa. Mm -hmm. This is something that has cropped up before in Christie's canon. This is poor Isaac Bodlicott before he gets coshed over the head and killed. He is nattering on about some random old lady. And he says, when people came up the drive, she'd have a revolver with her and she'd shoot either side of them. Yes. Got them frightened to death and they ran away. She said she wouldn't have anyone coming in and disturbing the birds. Very keen on the birds she was. And this is precisely what Monty did when he returned from Africa. He was a bit of a troublesome presence for Agatha and her sister Madge. And we have a character doing that in the play the unexpected guest, which Catherine and I actually discuss on a Patreon episode. So I liked that reference. I think that we should be kind to this category. I don't think it should be super, super high though. Where did you come down on this, Caroline? I put six brackets, mostly for Albert. (laughs) That's the note I made about this. I said five, but I am actually happy to bump that up to a six. It certainly should not be in the upper echelons because nothing should be when we're ranking this book, but a six is super kind um, and I'm happy to give it a six. Let's talk a little bit about book specific characters. One of the few nice things anyone had to say about this book was Laura Thompson's take on Hannibal the dog. This is what Mm -hmm. she wrote. The book contains the odd sudden gleam as when she describes Hannibal's extraordinary knack of altering his size when he wanted to, so that instead of appearing somewhat broad-shouldered, possibly a somewhat too plump dog, he could at any moment make himself like a thin black thread. And I actually underlined Christie's description of Hannibal when I was reading because it really did stand out and I found it to be a breath of fresh air amid the muddle. This is what she wrote. Hannibal was a small black dog, very glossy, with interesting tan patches on his behind and each side of his cheeks. He was a Manchester Terrier, a very pure pedigree, and he considered himself to be on a much higher level of sophistication and aristocracy than any other dog he met. 
And we have a bunch of doggy language in this book, which we had in Dumb Witness. And I found it a little embarrassing in Dumb Witness. I have to admit, I found it a little embarrassing here. But it is charming. And given how little else there is to talk about when it comes to book-specific characters, I just want to linger on this a moment. So this is just a taste of the doggy language in the book. Hannibal acknowledged the privilege by grunting and sniffing in various tufts of grass with which the pavement next to the wall was adorned. If he could have used human language, it was clear that what he would have said was, delicious, very rich, big dog here, believe it's that beastly Alsatian low growl. I don't like Alsatians. If I see the one again that bit me once, I'll bite him. Ah, delicious, delicious. Very nice little bitch here. Yes, yes, I'd like to meet her. I wonder if she lives far away. Expect she comes out of this house. I wonder now. (laughs) So, Caroline, you are the expert now on dogs and mystery literature after your recent (laughs) She Done It episode on this topic. I believe you even touched briefly on Posturing of Fate. So what do you have to say about Hannibal? (laughs) So I'm a big fan of Hannibal. I think he's, as you say, really the only notable book-specific character in this book. But I share your kind of uh, about having dogs talk like that. I'm not a fan. For me, it makes me feel similar to when I find a dialect written out in books. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the worst defenders for that is actually not Christie, but the Dorothy L. Sayers novel Five Red Herrings where there's just pages and pages of Scottish people written out sort of almost phonetically and it's really, really unpleasant. And yes, I get a similar feeling from dog stream of consciousness as I do from that. I'm not a fan. I think it's possible to include dogs as characters in books or indeed any animals and have them contribute meaningfully without having to do this strange thing of sort of inhabiting their minds and puppeting what they say. So no, don't enjoy those bits of dialogue. But in general, I do enjoy Hannibal's presence. I like his little role at the dinner at the very end of the book, Mm -hmm. where he's sort of lying on the floor and uh, slightly unsettling the guests by his presence, but he's on his best behaviour because they're out for dinner. I did enjoy that. I've probably said that to someone myself when I've gone out with my dog. (laughs) So (laughs) that spoke to me. But yes, so uh, I think any any mark that we give for this category, we're basically giving it to Hannibal. Yeah, I also appreciated his regal name, which reminded me of Tiglath Pileser, the cat uh, <laughs> named after an Assyrian king in A Murder is Announced. For someone who named her own dogs quite pedestrian names, right? Mm. Treacle, Peter. Uh, Peter. A, a long time dog called Peter, yeah. Yep, Peter also. She definitely goes very big when it comes to her fictional dogs. So I, th- I thought that that was interesting. But yeah, Hannibal is probably the best book-specific character and I agree with your assessment. I don't even think he's necessarily done particularly well, but it's at least amusing. There is, believe it or not, a second dog whose dialogue is recorded in these pages. That would be <laughs> James, a former dog of Tommy and Tuppence's. He's a cilium of obstinate nature with a heavy sausage-like body. I will spare you the dialogue that we get uh, from James. <laughs> A few other points on book-specific characters. John Curran was as irked as I was that there's a tangential character named Miss Price Ridley, who doesn't Mm. seem to have any relation to the Mrs. Price Ridley, who lives in St. Mary Mead and who was featured in more than a few Miss Marple stories. He writes, this is the sort of irritating mistake that an editor should have spotted. Agreed, John Curran. Um, You know, blink and you miss her, Miss Price Ridley, but still, it's a name that stands out to any fan of Christie. It's very annoying. I was tickled by the fact that the ancient lady of the neighborhood, Mrs. Griffin, is said to be 94, which is significantly older than Christie's 83. (laughs) I can just imagine her being like, well, I'm not 94. I mean, come on. Um, I'm not old. Yeah, exactly. And Christie, she feels the need to add, 
She looked thoroughly alert and perfectly capable of reaching the age of 100 or even 110. It's like, okay, Christy, we, we get it. I mean, it's, it's actually, it makes me feel quite sympathetic toward Christy. She wants to feel as though she has many years ahead of her. And she had a couple, unfortunately, not as many as, as I'm sure she would have liked. But Mrs. Griffin mentions the Prisoner of Zenda and a few of those Mrs. Molesworth titles that I already went over in my summary um, when Tuppence was leafing through them. I did appreciate that she repeats... Uh, the old world sensibility as to not reading novels in the morning, which we heard from Lady Matilda Cleckheaton in Passenger to Frankfurt. Here's Mrs. Griffin's take. You know, novel reading was not encouraged. My mother and my grandmother never approved of reading anything like a novel in the mornings, a storybook as it was called. You know, you could read history or something serious, but novels were only pleasurable and so to be read in the afternoon. It's just so delightfully old fashioned. And she said it before, <laughs> but I, I love whenever that comes up. Yeah, no, that that does, I think, give you an absolutely crystal clear glimpse into Christie's childhood, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it really does. And, and I mentioned that we get a bunch of children depicted in the last third of the book. I thought that was merely interesting because it's like she's focusing on the very young and the very old in this story. And probably because she's thinking of herself as a child, so it felt natural to populate the book with bunches of children. I don't think that they are particularly well depicted whatsoever. When it comes to book-specific characters, I actually think this is fairly abominable and probably should be one of the lowest rankings that we've given for the category. Where did you come down on this, Caroline? So I slightly flippantly noted that I felt the name Isaac Bodlicott was good. Mm -hmm. like, just the name, like nothing to do with the character, I think. <laughs> right. And therefore, I'd said two or maybe three because I think the name is a good invention. I feel pretty strongly that this should be a two. I'm willing to go with that. Okay. <laughs> I agree. It is a good name. But boy, if, if that's all we have to say, <laughs> that, yes, you know, in exactly. a Christie, oh, how Hannibal the mighty have and fallen. and a good name. That's, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Bang up name, Agatha. Bang up name. All right. So two for book-specific characters. Now let's talk a little bit about setting and tone, our catch-all category. I talked in my summary a lot about all the ways in which Christy was drawing on her memory of Ashfield and her childhood in general to fill out this world of the laurels or swallow's nest or whatever we want to call this house. There really are a lot of details, but I'm not sure that the setting, either as to place or time, is actually particularly well evoked because it's so hazy and so dreamy. And there was just one little moment that I think exemplifies this because it was so odd to me and maybe I'm misreading it. I'm curious if you feel the same way about this, Caroline, or gleaned the same thing from it. But there's a moment when Albert appears and he says that, oh, Tuppence must have rang the bell for him. And she replies, not really. I just leant on it, getting up on a chair to take a book out. Does that mean that there was a bell pull? in the room? Is Albert being summoned via an upstairs, downstairs, Downton Abbey-esque bell pole system in 1973? I guess maybe it could have been an actual physical tinkly bell, but she was standing on a chair trying to get a book out. So to me, that implies a bell pole, right? Yeah, I, I think that's what she's saying, that she accidentally lent on it while she was standing on a chair to get a book. And I think you could be charitable and say that maybe it was a system that was just really old and had been in the house for years. But the fact that it still works is a bit suspicious. My family lived in a house that was uh, from the 1880s when I was growing up. And it did in some of the rooms still have, because it was kind of built into the moulding, it still had the, the bell, but they'd been painted over years ago. Of course, they didn't work. And I think all the electrics had been removed. So 
Yeah, I think that's definitely a strange inconsistency rather than anything intentional, surely. Oh, that is such music to this Californian's ears. I can't believe you grew up in a house that dated back to the 1880s and had a bell pole system in it. That's so fantastic. The house I'm sitting in right now, Kemper, was built in 1893. Oh my God. I mean, we, we do have houses that were built in the 1890s in California too, but you know, not many of them. And uh, I'm certainly not sitting in one right now. That's so great. Yeah. I mean, it just, to me, what this reads as is that Christy is just thinking about how things were at Ashfield mm-hmm. when she was a child and she's not bothering to place the book in the year in which it was set, which does seem to be the 70s, because we do get a couple of references that place this in the 70s. It's interesting. At one point, when Tuppence is going to give away this brass lamp for a local white elephant sale, she says that it's Egyptian, quote, since Egypt was doubtless in the news at this moment. And that seems to be a reference to the early years of Anwar Sadat's regime, which definitely mm-hmm. was very much in the news. Yeah. So I thought that that was an interesting little reference. And then this one really amused me because it strikes me from the vantage point of 2022 as so charmingly retro. Tuppence and Miss Price Ridley, <laughs> no relation, are contrasting the automated version of a tin opener with the kind with a bull's head that one never sees nowadays. To me, that felt like very much within the 70s craze for automating all sorts of things that didn't really need to be automated because maybe this is also an American versus English thing, but we don't have automated tins really anymore. I think there were a lot of kitchen accessories in the 70s that were automated that people realized were more trouble than they were worth. And, you know, I know that they do exist, but we really have gone back to manual tin openers and even like the the mixers, the sort of like the stationary mixers that were a lot more elaborate back in the day. A lot of people have just gotten much more simplified with them because they're more trouble than they're worth. And that was a moment where I was like, oh, this feels very much like we're in the 70s and, and they probably have these fairly kitted out 70s kitchens. Does that make sense to you? No, absolutely. I mean, I'm only really aware of those automatic tin openers as a kind of fad of a a time when, quote, labour-saving devices Mm -hmm. were everywhere. I mean, I don't think I've ever even seen one in real life. I've never come across one. You know, I have one that you just turn the handle off. That's what I know of as a tin opener. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that definitely places it in a moment when it was very trendy to try and automate everything and it wasn't a trend that lasted. Okay, good. I'm, I'm glad that I wasn't misinterpreting things. I always feel like I'm on shifting sands ever since the uh, hundreds and thousands incident, <laughs> the, the, group, <laughs> the notorious enough, hundreds yes. and thousands. I don't want to make any assumptions. Never make assumptions in Christie, right? <laughs> Clarence, one of the boys, references the IRA. He says, I expect it's them Irish, said Clarence, hopefully. Mm-hmm. The IRA, you know, they've been trying to blow this place up. That very much feels like a 1973 moment. And then this is just really tiny, but it also amused me. Tuppence is eating grapes and she just eats the seeds in the grapes because she's too impatient to take them out. And I have to say that brought me back because I remember from my childhood always having to deal with seeds and grapes and especially Mm -hmm. seeds and watermelon and how annoying it was to have to either pick them out with your finger or spit them out. And certainly seeded grapes and seeded watermelon and other seeded fruits still exist. But I think the seedless varieties have become so common nowadays that we kind of have forgotten that that ever used to be an issue, or at least I have. And I was like, oh, that actually is a bit of a retro moment. Like that takes me back. 
now I'm going to probably out myself as not eating fruit as much as I should, but seedless grapes I'm very aware of. I didn't know that seedless watermelon was a thing. <laughs> the last time I had watermelon, it still had seeds in it. I'm actually quite obsessed with watermelon. I eat it regularly, even in California, even with you know fruits being available year round, which they probably shouldn't be because it's probably not very good for the environment. There still is a period when watermelons are pretty terrible, but I kind of just mm-hmm. plot on through it and keep on getting these mini <laughs> seedless watermelons. And like every other one is terrible. And I'm just like, oh, well, that one was a dud. <laughs> um, but yeah, I eat watermelon regularly. And the idea of having to actually take the seeds out at this point, I would be like, oh my God, such drudgery. I, I, I don't think I'd be able to do it. <laughs> Christy references the common market multiple times. Um, you know, that's the, the European economic community. Let's just remind ourselves, right before she passed away, she voted for the UK to remain a part of the EEC. There was a referendum on that issue and, and Max actually urged her to vote yes, and she did. It was the last referendum on that issue before the Brexit vote, actually. So I think that's interesting. And she's ambiguous about the EEC in here. At one point, there's a bit of suspicion thrown on it. But then another point, the same character that had been throwing suspicion on it, I believe it's Colonel Bikeaway, he says, well, you know, it actually is a good thing if if it could be made to work. So I I thought that was really interesting. And I think my understanding is that that's fairly typical view of the time, that people you know, I'm sure there were a segment of people who were, you know, ideologically very pro Britain being closer to Europe, of course. But then there was a much larger segment of people who were kind of like, hmm, I don't know about this. Like, if it works, I guess, you know, that I think mm-hmm. that was a pretty common view, to be honest, like people who maybe had hangover views about the war or whatever, but for pragmatic reasons, were willing to countenance it. So yeah, I, I, I buy that. I feel that that's, that feels nicely of its time, as it were. So, you know, I think that the house is, again, well rendered in a way. It's almost like we see the trees, but at the expense of the forest. Like there are a lot of little details, right? As to all of the objects that are stuffed into KK, into this little um, mini conservatory. (laughs) And we can maybe... I still find the naming of sheds deeply weird. It's so bizarre. It doesn't make any sense. It, I, I get it like slightly annoyed every time I have to say it or think about it. But yeah, so we get that. We, we get glimpses of what the garden looks like with the monkey puzzle tree and all of that. But I still don't think we actually get a proper sense of the house and the town. I mean, it's very odd that hollow key, I guess we can call it. I mean, it's, it's obviously a stand-in for Torquay, but it's not named until about a third of the way through the book. It feels as though Christy thinks she named it earlier on, but didn't. And it's kind of brought to life, but mainly, I think, in a lazy way. We have what at this point has become such a classic Christie trope, an obligatory reference to the Victorians doing damage to the local village church. One of you listeners actually wrote in and used the term ruinovate for what the Victorians did. And, and it's just such a great word that I promised myself I would use it on an episode. So that's what I'm doing now. But she just always has to mention like, oh, and then, you know, there are some Victorian additions to the local church and oh, so awful. But it, it, nothing that's done, I think, very well, especially when we're comparing it to better Christie's as to setting. And then if we want to talk a little bit about tone, which is where readability comes in, obviously we've been saying this 
throughout this whole discussion. This is probably Christie's least readable book. It's just very difficult to get through. Um, and that's almost never the case with Christie. I think it's more difficult to get through than Elephants Can Remember, which was before I read Posture and Fate, the most difficult Christie book to get through. So we know why that's the case. And I don't think we need to dwell on that too much. But I will say that in addition to the befuddlement of perhaps the author and just the general muddle of the writing, there is a lot of sloppiness, which really should have been fixed in the editing process. And we've mentioned a couple of them, but I don't know if you came across this, Caroline, but there were three instances of Tuppence responding to herself in the course of dialogue. Yes, that right? really threw me off. Again, I had those moments where I was like, hang on, am I not understanding this correctly? Is this punctuated weirdly in my copy? Was the thought that I had as well. But yes, no, I, I, that definitely struck me oddly. It's just, and that is like, I mean, that is squarely on the shoulders of editors. Yes. Because that is... And and again, what I don't understand is if the continuity error of calling Albert's wife Millie Amy in this book has been corrected, why is this not corrected? <laughs> That's a very good question. It's bonkers. I, I will only read out the first time it happens because I, I really did have to stop. And I was like, am I, am I going crazy? They're talking about Mary Jordan and they're talking about whether or not she worked for the English or for the enemy, essentially. And this is what Christy writes for us and not for them, agreed Tuppence abroad. And so she came here as what? Oh, I don't know, said Tuppence. We shall have to start all over again, finding <laughs> blah, 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 blah. And it's just like, what? I mean, that is just a, a clear error that is really not Christie's fault. I, I honestly am now uh, just a, a little miffed with the present day editors, right? It's like, just fix yeah. it. It'll at least make it, it feels like no one is reading this book anymore, you know? No, absolutely. And therefore hasn't spotted it and that doesn't care. Yeah, no, that's, that is definitely something that the editors should, should have dealt with. No, no question. There's also, I, I just found this kind of funny, but there's a moment when Tommy and Inspector Norris for the end of the book are speaking and Christy writes that they looked at each other, quote, for about five minutes without speaking. <laughs> Which, very strange. Do you know what? When I was thinking about setting and tone for this book, something I like to do when I think about this is, you know, if I were adapting this, if I was trying to create an adaptation is there enough there that I would know, say, what I was scouting for in terms of locations? You know, would I be able to find mm. the laurels? Would I be able to put this on camera? And this book absolutely fails that test, both in the sense of setting, in that I could pick out specific details. Like I could probably tell you what kind of rocking horse you're looking for, but right. I couldn't tell you what sort of room the rocking horse should be in or anything like that. And then same stuff like that. You know, if you were trying to make, write a faithful screenplay from this, you would just have to have a five minute pause in the middle of it, where two not especially important characters, or at least one especially not important character, just has to stand there in silence. Be like, like The I, Sims, you know, if you ever played The Sims, <laughs> where your Sims run out of things to say and you haven't given them a new dialogue and they just like look at each other and go, mm hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's absolutely true. And I, when I came across that, I was thinking to myself, I feel like Caroline and I should just be silent for a full five minutes on this podcast episode. <laughs> respect, just, yes. <laughs> just, just to show you how long just, that is. Yeah. Just to demonstrate how long that is, because that is shockingly long. That is shockingly long. I mean, come on. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked a lot about how the book is meandering and just rambling, right? And there are some particularly egregious spots because 
I think you could argue it's one long ramble, actually, which again is why it's probably going to score lower in setting and tone even than elephants can remember. But I just wanted to highlight one by way of example. And it's Tuppence going on a flight of fancy about old school breakfasts the Parkinson's may have eaten in their house back in the day. And this is what she says. Fried egg or poached eggs and bacon. And perhaps she threw her mind a, a good long way back to remembrances of old novels. Perhaps, yes, Perhaps cold grouse on the sideboard. Delicious. Oh, yes. I remember. Delicious, it sounded. Of course. I suppose children were so unimportant that they only let them have the legs. Legs of game are very good because you can nibble at them. It's like, what? <laughs> like, why are we talking about <laughs> nibbling at legs of game? Like, what is happening? It's just beyond the the ramblings that we've gotten in previous Christie's. And yeah. I think we have to come down pretty hard on setting and tone. Where did you land in this category, Caroline? So I wrote two question mark, maybe one. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. I was thinking either a two or a three, although we gave a three to elephants can remember, which was probably pretty kind to that book. I think we cannot do a three. I agree. I mean, I would be okay with a two. Yeah, I probably... Okay, okay. I'd also honestly be okay with a one if you really felt that strongly about it. But if you're okay with a two, I think let's... No, I think for the sake of the fact that some of the sort of specific memories, they do speak to you. You know, you do feel like Christy is referencing something that means something to her. Uh, I think, yeah, for that reason, we can go to... Yeah. And also, I mean, there the theme of aging and the failure of memory, and I guess what we could call a general state of befuddlement, really is another recurring theme in this book, just as it was mm. in Nemesis to a certain extent, and then in Elephants Can Remember to a great extent. I mean, she does have Tommy and Tuppence and even a few other characters, even Mr. Robinson, calling out the fact that they're fuzzy on details or they're forgetting things a lot. Or at one point, Tommy is even worried that Tuppence is going to scald herself from kettles or disasters with the heat of the stove. I mean, that is at least creating a world that feels real to the moment of posture and of fate, Mm -hmm. not well and not consistently, but that is there. So, okay, let's give it a two. And then our final category, which happily I think is is a pretty simple one to rank. It isn't always in Christie, but we have the issue of depictions stuck in their time. Here's the thing. This book really doesn't have a time, does it? So no, it doesn't. I, so I don't think we really have a time in which to stick any depictions that might jar a modern day reader. But I also don't think we really have any depictions that are going to jar in that way. There's a moment when Colonel Pikeaway is opining about women and he says, these women are like that. They can get at secrets. If you're young and beautiful, you do it like Delilah. When you're old, I can tell you, I had an old great aunt once and there was no secret that she didn't nose into and find out the truth about. But that is Colonel Pikeaway speaking. And there are a few other sexist comments, some of them said to or by Tommy, but he almost always relays them to Tuppence, who usually has uh, a rejoinder ready for him and smacks him down about it. So I, you know, I had no problems in this area and I would happily give it a zero. Yeah, no, I feel the same. I think, yeah, partly because what time are we supposed to be in? Who knows? <laughs> uh, and then also just because, yes, I think on the rare occasions when there are comments that you might raise your eyebrows at, they're not endorsed by the book right. in the way that I think perhaps is relevant elsewhere for this. Absolutely. Very well put. We are at my favorite part of the episode, which is tallying up the rankings. For Postern of Fate, we have a two plus two plus six, 
plus two, plus two, minus zero for a grand total of 14 points. Putting Posturn of Fate, I don't think this is going to surprise anyone. In dead last place, Secret of Chimneys, you have been unseated. <laughs> I'm honored to have been here for this historic moment. <laughs> Mark and I mentioned this in Elephants Can Remember. I remember talking about this with Sophie Hanna when we ranked Passenger to Frankfurt. Even in these quote-unquote worst Christies, the execrable Christies, I think is the way someone else put it, there is still is a lot to delight in and to talk about. And I'm honestly so grateful that I was able to do that with you, Caroline. And I had a lot of fun having this conversation, probably more fun than I had reading the actual book, but I am glad to have done it (laughs) and to have been able to talk about it with you. Me too. Absolutely. Likewise. And I will say for anyone who is still considering an attempt at reading this book, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. That's my best recommendation. (laughs) It truly wasn't. Mine as well. A good place to end. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you, Caroline. Thank you very much. Well, that is Postern of Fate. I am relieved to have that behind me, I have to say. Though, as always, I feel some regret because that just brings us one book closer to the end. I want to thank Caroline Crampton again for facing Postern of Fate with me. I think we did it proud. I think we took a long, hard, affectionate, yet truthful look at this final Tommy and Tuppence and the final novel Agatha Christie ever wrote, but not the final novel she ever published. So as many of you will know, we have two novels left, Curtain and Sleeping Murder. And that is the order in which those two novels were published. Sleeping Murder is actually the final Agatha Christie novel published, the sole posthumous publication of Christie's. And Curtain was published second to last at the very end of Agatha Christie's life. Here's the thing. Catherine and I had an ongoing debate about the order in which we should cover these final two novels. That debate, tragically, was never resolved because Catherine passed away before we got up to this point on the podcast. But she was adamant that Curtain should be the final novel covered. I, of course, the pedant that I am, that you all know me to be, was equally adamant that we had to continue covering these novels in the order in which they were published. That is what we have been doing from the beginning, and we needed to be consistent (laughs) to the very end. And I believe that we should cover Curtain and then Sleeping Murder. The irony, of course, is that I now feel in Catherine's absence that she has to win the debate because she's not here to duke it out with me to the end. We are going to do it Catherine's way. And for that reason, the next novel that we will be covering on this podcast is, quite shockingly, Sleeping Murder, the last Miss Marple to be published. My co-host for the Sleeping Murder episode, I'm thrilled to report, will be Tony Medower. You may not have heard his name as much as some of the other co-hosts I've been lucky enough to have on in recent episodes, but Tony has been a friend of the podcast for quite some time. He was the organizer for the International Agatha Christie Festival for many years running and instrumental in making our live episode happen at last year's festival. He is a mystery author, a mystery scholar, a Miss Marple expert, 
And I just couldn't imagine a better person to have on for our final Miss Marple novel. So that will be some weeks in the future. I have a couple of episodes I'll be putting out between this one and that one. My very next episode will be an interview with Ruth Ware, who was on this podcast before. She came on at the beginning of the pandemic. (laughs) I believe it was in spring of 2020. She has a new book out. The book will actually be coming out just after the episode airs. So there's not even really any homework for any of you to do in terms of reading for the episode. But I have read an advanced copy of it. The book is called The It Girl, and it's fantastic. Feel free to pre-order it now if you should so desire. So Ruth Ware is up next. Sleeping Murder is the next novel episode. Much, much more to come. And of course, should you want even more, you could always check out the podcast's Patreon account over at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. I've included a link in the notes to this episode. June's episode was a deep dive review of Why Didn't They Ask Evans, the Hugh Laurie adaptation on BritBox. And July's episode, as I mentioned earlier, will be an analysis of the Mary Westmacott novel, Giant's Bread. You can always email me at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. The podcast is on Twitter at allaboutthedame and on Instagram at allaboutagatha. I'm not super good about updating either of those accounts, but I'm trying to get better at it. And I have updated both those accounts with screenshots of Agatha Christie's letter to the Times about Shakespeare's Dark Lady and the photograph of Monty sitting on True Love. (laughs) So feel free to go there and check those out. I always love a rating and or a review. Really does help the podcast out. All right. See you next time. Bye. Bye.